Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the big dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined today by Steve. Whoa, I am a vampire. <laughs> oh, I gotta keep it scary for Halloween, right? Okay, dork. <laughs> and review dude Josh. Boo, I'm a spoopy ghost. <laughs> See, there Did we go. Josh is in the spirit. Do you guys plan this shit together? What are you doing? Absolutely. You're fucking up my podcast. <laughs> yes. Every time we plan this ahead of time. <laughs> For every dumb joke you make, we lose a listener. <laughs> oh. Well, if that was the case, we'd be in the red. Yeah, probably. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I appreciate you guys being in the spirit. As I'm sure you guys remember, the three of us did a podcast on another Tim Burton movie about a year ago. A little bit more, actually, a year and a half. But this time we're here to do a review of the movie Sleepy Hollow, 1999, directed by Tim Burton. This is our final film of the Halloween season. I really hope this episode does come out in October. We'll see. Of course, we drew a different movie from the hat on our last podcast. We drew From Hell, but we're actually doing Sleepy Hollow. Steve, what what's happening here? Somebody didn't know the difference between the two. Somebody? <laughs> Is that you? Uh, right. Well, no, I think maybe... I, I, for some reason, this one didn't get thought of. We probably just would have gone into the hat instead of From Hell, but... In retrospect, it just seems like even though Jack the Ripper's Halloween appropriate, that the Headless Horseman was probably even more appropriate. So we switched. Well, I, uh, when I was making the list, I started at the year 2000, and I guess this is 99, and I guess that was the cutoff, and I, I it slipped my radar. I forgot about it. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think yeah. it's easy to mix up Sleepy Hollow and From Hell in your mind because you got these Johnny Depp period pieces, you know? <laughs> right. One's got Heather Graham and one's got Christina Ricci. They're both blonde. I don't know. We're doing Sleepy Hollow. I'm sorry. People, hat lovers, I apologize. You know, the hat purists out there are hat not going to be The fedora crowd. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, fedora boys. So I wanted to ask you guys about gothic movies. Actually, gothic movies and Johnny Depp movies. Or gothic movies or Johnny Depp movies. So here's my question to you. We'll start with you, Josh. What's your favorite, like, gothic movie or movies? Hmm. Or your favorite Johnny Depp movie or movies? Or your favorite gothic Johnny Depp movies? So we got the whole spectrum here. Because <laughs> Johnny right, Depp's right, been in a lot right. of movies like this. It's kind of his thing. But uh, why don't you go ahead and take it away? Okay, so gothic is kind of a broad term. So I just kind yeah. of Googled, you know, what is considered gothic uh, and I kind of picked from a list of already things. Did a picture of Hot Topic appear? Yes. <laughs> so oh, I've got a couple honorable mentions. The Crow, I think, is pretty pretty good. The original. And I know yeah. me and Steve love, love our city of angels. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I got Beetlejuice, which is just a childhood classic of mine. Yeah. And then I've got Pan's Labyrinth. Now, specifically, if we're going gothic-y Johnny Depp, though, I, I've got to go Sweeney Todd. I Just something about that movie. I'm not a fucking musical person by any means, 
but that movie is so awesome. It's so beautiful. I, I love it. Yeah, I, I think I agree with Josh about that. I mean, my favorite gothic debt movie has got to be Sweeney Todd. This is a good one. I enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed, I think From Hell, and this would be a very close second for me. From Hell might even be a tie for first, but in any case, Sweeney Todd's up at the top as well. It's a really good one. Favorite debt movies in general. That's a hard one to pick out. He's been in, he's been in a ton of good stuff. I mean, Fear and Loathing is one of my favorite movies of all time. The yeah. original Nightmare on Elm Street is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, Sweeney Todd. Uh, 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 there's no way I'll think of everything he was in off the top of my head. But yeah, um, Cry Baby. <laughs> oh yeah, well, Cry. I, I do like Cry Baby. I mean, David Lynch's movies are. Is that John Waters movie? Oh, John. You know what? That's right. Cry Baby was a Waters movie. Sorry, <laughs> uh, Waters movies as well. Waters movies can be kind of difficult to watch sometimes but uh yeah i haven't seen it in years i barely <laughs> remember it. it there's some pretty cool. disturbing characters in that film but yeah you know but there's been some pretty great gothic horror it's you're right though it's hard to define i mean uh, for all for all the small issues the film might have had including keanu reeves um coppola's version of dracula really is a beautiful film really well photographed that's probably up there but, sir, I know where the bastard sleeps. I brought him there to Carfax Abbey. The original Crow, a different kind of movie, but I, I'll always love it. The movie's got a lot of character. I love the graphic novel it's based on. Beetlejuice. Um, I mean, I think you could argue there's some other stuff that's like vaguely gothic, even though it doesn't fit. Some of the like, Giallo stuff, like Suspiria, the original Suspiria. The Raven starring John Cusack. I, you know, I'm going to pretend we didn't bring that movie up, but yes. And it's Branagh's Frankenstein. <laughs> right? <laughs> Branagh's Frankenstein's an interesting one. I don't know. How, De Niro's version of Frankenstein's awfully polarizing. <laughs> I don't hate it. I don't hate it either. It's it's a good movie in a lot of ways. But yeah, I, I, I mean, those are just the honorable mentions. There's one called Angel Hurt with Robert De Niro and, and Mickey Rourke from the late 80s. It's great. Is it an angel and he gives half his heart to David Thewlis so he can live? <laughs> No, it's fortunately a lot less stupid than that. It's not. It's not basic. It's not Dragonheart with angels. No, no. Fortunately, it isn't. Dragonheart's cool. Say what you want about the movie, but it has one of the all-time greatest scores ever. It's a good yeah. movie. It's a good. The first Dragonheart's a good movie. I forgot that they made a bunch of shitty sequels, like straight to the DVD bin, like right? straight to the five-dollar Walmart bin. By the time you get to the third one, it's it's pretty pretty over. <laughs> like. Yeah. I mean, even Nightmare Before Christmas is a little gothic. Well, I'm going to answer my question with just the Johnny Depp portion. My favorite Johnny Depp movie right now, and that might change, it does change, is a movie called Dead Man. Oh, that's a really good movie. I talked about it a little bit. really good movie, yeah. That's a Jim Jarmusch movie that is a 90s Johnny Depp, so it's an early Johnny Depp western but it's a very weird Western. It is. It's very creepy and surreal. And when I first watched that movie, I just did not fucking get it. And I actually hated it. And now it's my favorite Johnny Depp movie. I think if you watch this movie as if it's just your run-of-the-mill blockbuster Johnny Depp movie, you're going to be disappointed because this movie yeah. is about something specific, right? And it's not just surface-level story. Because if you look at it at surface level, it's... It's kind of like weird. It's like, why is it? Why is he doing this? How did he get to be yeah. this good with a pistol? What's going on? But uh, it's uh, it's a movie about death. It's it's very interesting. It's poetic, 
and it's beautiful in a lot of ways. In fact, on the back of that, I'm going to throw one in, another one other in also. Speaking of Jim Jarmusch, in a movie I've been bugging you to watch, he did a vampire film a few years ago, won a bunch of awards called Only Lovers Left Alive. It is, it's not a typical vampire movie. It's very different from a lot of the rest. It's still about a couple of vampires, but it is so fucking good. Some of the reviews are a little mixed. I can understand why some people might have a hard time getting on on it, but in on it, but it's it's definitely very gothic. It's it's one of the most original approaches to a vampire story I've ever seen. It's one of my four or five absolute favorite vampire movies. In fact, I'll throw another one in there too. Tony Scott's The Hunger. Tony Scott's The Hunger is very gothic. That's a great movie. The Hunger Games? The Hunger Games, yeah. Tony Scott's The Hunger Games? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, oh, and uh, Let the Right One In. Is that movie Finnish or Icelandic? It's from Northern Europe. Real about a, a little kid vampire. Really, really good movie. Not, not a family movie at all. It's just about a little kid who happens to be a vampire. Yeah. In terms of gothic movies, I'm going to give my answer as a little movie you guys might have heard of called Queen of the Damned. <laughs> Solid pick? Qu -qu Questionable pick. <laughs> Questionable, huh? I think this movie, Sleepy Hollow, is one of the last good Tim Burton movies. And this is another topic I've touched on before. But he definitely fell off for me. Now, some people don't agree with this. But for me, he did. And I'll tell you why. He started out doing movies like Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman and Batman Returns, Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow. Immediately after Sleepy Hollow is Planet of the Apes. Mm. And it's all downhill from there, my friend. With one exception, which I will give you guys, Sweeney Todd is a pretty fucking great movie with great music. It is an adaptation, unlike a lot of his previous stuff. But... I mean, in that same area, with the early 2000s and on, you got Big Fish, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which Steve is an apologist for, Alice in Wonderland. There's nothing to apologize for. Miss <laughs> Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, Dumbo, etc. Et you don't cetera. like the 2012 version of Frank and Weenie? I haven't seen it, so I can't speak uh, to it. I like oh, that yeah, one. I forgot that one existed. But right. yeah, I was going to agree completely with Corey. It's pretty much all downhill after Planet of the Apes. For the most part. Yeah, I mean, he, did, he didn't He did direct it. He contributed to The Corpse Bride also, which I thought was fun. Not as good as Nightmare, but good. And uh, Sweeney Todd, which you mentioned, and um, Frankenweenie. But yeah, most of the rest of it. His adaptation of the Dark Shadows TV show was close. I think he got a lot of the um, campiness of it. It just, it just kind of fell a little flat at the end. I dodged that movie. I think, like, I was kind of oddly fascinated by the 70s era tv show when i was a kid for whatever weird reason so i wanted to see it plus i'm a burton fan wait it, was that a movie or tv show originally it was a television series the the television series was new i think in like the mid to late 70s and early 80s and it was a little weird in the sense that it was sort of not in the same melodramatic sense quite as much but it was sort of a soap opera but about monsters basically it was almost like what what you what you'd get if you crossed the monsters with a soap opera went off the air and uh Burton's version of it, which came out in 2012, was made as a feature film, and he put he put Depp in it, obviously. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Have you ever heard of a movie called Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, Steve? <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> not only have I heard of it, I've seen it. Look, Josh has a score to settle, as I believe, because on the Scream podcast that we did with Film Dylan, you said that that movie is not good. It Josh isn't. maintains that it is good. 
On what basis, Josh? I'm going to give you, I'm going to let you talk it out, but you got to be real convincing because that, that movie, as far as I'm concerned, is a flaming, smoking pile of garbage. It doesn't even have Michael Myers in it. All right, so right off the bat, let me ask you, would you feel the same way if it had just been called Season of the Witch? No, actually, I would agree with you about that. One of my main contentions is that they never should have tried to stuff it into the Halloween franchise. Well, let me let me backtrack slightly. I wouldn't feel quite as negatively because at least they wouldn't have done that, but I still wouldn't like it. I still would not. The, the whole poison Halloween mask thing does not work for me. <laughs> I will drop character a bit. It is an ironic kind of watch for me, like a la, a la Troll 2. However, I can understand that. unlike a Troll 2, there is legit production value. And just fucking Tom Atkins is just outstanding in his performance. He just oozes sex, you know? And just the whole fucking plot is just the most preposterously absurd goddamn thing I've ever seen in my fucking life. There's like Stonehenge, <laughs> microchips, fucking fucking robots. Like, who the fuck writes something like that? It's so creative. And I will, I will say this. Genuinely, when is the last time you've listened to that score? It has been a while since I've listened to the score. The score is so good. It, like, genuinely on a genuine level. I, I will, despite my naysaying, I, it's not a bad argument. I, I, I see where you're coming from. If you're watching it to be ironic and you recognize that the plot is garbage, I can see there being some entertainment value in it. I just don't think it's actually a good movie. <laughs> well, yeah, it it's, uh, it's bad. It's bad. But I will say it's fun. I can see that. I, I, I may not totally agree with you, but I can absolutely see where you're coming from. So I feel the same way about a lot of other movies that people hate, that like I enjoy watching it just because the experience does something for me. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's an experience. That's, that's how I would put it. Right. <laughs> well, well argued then. I got to give you at least a little ground on that. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, we didn't have to do it an entire hour and a half debate. <laughs> no. <laughs> nice and easy, boys. I love it. Nice and easy, boys. <sighs> Sleepy Hollow. Steve, how the hell was this movie made? Oh, boy. So you can't really talk about this with at least without at least mentioning Washington Irving. He's a name most people would probably know if you went to junior high school in the U.S. I don't mean that as a knock to anyone, but... Um, it's, he's just a, a writer that comes up a lot because of all the stuff he wrote. He was alive during the late 1700s and early to mid 1800s. His two most favorite stories are Rip Van Winkle, which a lot of people probably heard of, and the original Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Vanilla Ice? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You've heavily featured Vanilla Ice. <laughs> so in his original version of the story, Ichabod Crane is a schoolmaster from a larger East Coast city. I actually don't remember where, but I think he's supposed to have been from Connecticut or something like that. And he goes to Sleepy Hollow, which is a very small village, the remnants of a Dutch settlement in upstate New York, to become the schoolmaster. Uh, he finds that Sleepy Hollow is a, a kind of strange and ethereal place. It seems to be filled with spirits. The local residents all know tons of ghost stories, many of which are centered in that area. And there's a lot of supernaturalness going on and, and a story about a headless horseman who haunts the town which Ichabod does not originally believe. 
Uh, he falls in love with a young woman, Katrina Van Tassel, whose love he competes for with a man named, named Brom. And the story kind of goes from there. So um, there is this guy, Kevin Yeager. Kevin Yeager is a, a special effects technician. Pretty prolific career, actually, even if everything he's worked on hasn't been great. He did special effects work on the Aeon Flux movie, Lemony Snicket, Blow, another Johnny Depp movie, uh, Mission Impossible 2, Face Off. He, he did effects work for a horror version of Stiltskin from 96 with Robert England, Getting Even with Dad with Macaulay Culkin, Honey, I Blew Up the Kids, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. The guy's done multiple Nightmare on Elm Street films. He's credited with inventing the Freddy Krueger face makeup. He also invented the Chucky doll for the Child's Play movies and the design of the Crypt Keeper for Tales from the Crypt. Those are some classics. Yeah, those are some classics. Quite the fucking resume, yo. Yeah, exactly. He also did most of the puppet work for the uh, Crypt Keeper, in, including in, uh, I think, the Bordello of Blood movie. Um, yeah, the guy's got a great career, right? Um, also, one other thing about his career I want to mention, I know we'll all appreciate, is that he worked quite a bit, or at least once, with uh, Weird Al Yankovic. One of the big things he did for Yankovic was designing a gigantic fat suit for um, a 1988 video that Yankovic did called Fat. Um, that was in the 80s? Oh, I thought that was, was a 90s one? thing. Yeah, it was an 88 video. But Yankovic continued to use the suit during during concert performances for years after Jaeger made it for him. So it was it was going still going on into the 90s, uh, which I think is great. Jaeger, unfortunately, directed a Hellraiser movie that wasn't the original. It was Hellraiser Bloodline. <laughs> which one's that? The, like oh, the third or fourth one? That's the space one. This, yeah. That's the space one? I was going to ask you yeah. that's the space one. Um, oh, now, he no. he contends to this day that the film was better when he finished it and that Dimension re-edited it. And he had such, a, we go. He, he had such a huge fight with them over it that he had his name... The Alan Smithy. Yeah, yes. exactly. He had his name removed from the film and the director was credited as Alan Smithy, which is the pseudonym the Directors Guild use for, uses for any film where they, they don't have a real director's name to use. But... um. At some point in 93-ish, Jaeger had this idea to adapt Sleepy Hollow, but he wanted to adapt the Sleepy Hollow story into a horror film, like a real horror film, kind of like what they eventually did in 96 with Robert England and Rumpelstiltskin. Somebody else also did a version, a horror version in the mid-90s of, um, I think, Snow White. Was it Snow White with... Uh, oh, Sigourney Weaver? Yeah, with Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, yes. thank you. Uh, so he had this idea... He actually self-described the film as being a pretentious slasher film with a spectacular murder every five minutes. And um, he wrote this idea out after doing, took years, he did the Hellraiser movie, then he started writing out this idea, couldn't quite get it developed into a script by himself, but his agent introduced him to a writer named Andrew Kevin Walker. Walker has done a combination of writing on his own and contributing to other people's scripts a lot of the time, he's not credited, even on films where he did a tremendous amount of work, because he's often employed as a script doctor, which is somebody used by the industry to help finish out a script that they want to film, but that they don't feel is ready to be filmed. On his own, Andrew Kevin Walker wrote the scripts for the movie Seven, which is brilliant, 8mm, which is interesting at least. He wrote the script for the 2010 version of Wolfman, and he also did one of our recent favorites. He wrote the screenplay for Brain Scan. Um, Brain Scan. Oh, Brain Scan. Brain Scan is ready. <laughs> yes. Quick, um, uh, quick correction. I don't see that Robert England was in that Rumpelstiltskin movie. 
Was it Rumpelstiltskin or... No, I'm familiar with a 1995 Rumpelstiltskin starring... Corey, I sent you an image of the guy. It's like some Star Trek actor. Don't remember. Don't remember? He's like a DS9 actor or something. It's like a really bad one. Maybe it was Phantom of the Opera they did with him. That's what it was. He did Phantom of the Opera with Robert Englund. I'm sorry, I mixed those two up. Uh, yeah, it might be Rumpelstiltskin. Okay, very different, Steve. Yeah, Rumpel, very different You know movies. what? It was, I think, Josh, we may have been wrong on the other one also. It may have been Rumpelstiltskin they did with Sigourney Weaver and Phantom of the Opera that, that Robert Englund was in. No, no one was in this Rumpelstiltskin movie. I'm looking at it. No oh, one wasn't was that, in this So movie. then it was Snow White with Sigourney Weaver, and it was Phantom of the Opera they did with Robert Englund. So pardon me for that. Yeah, that is, that is a good correction. So anyway, so Jaeger had this idea to do a horror slasher version of Sleepy Hollow. He tries to get it written after he does Hellraiser. He ends up, through his agent, getting hooked up with Andrew Kevin Walker. And uh, the two of them write out a script together for this. Interestingly, Walker ends up being credited as the writer of this film, even though what they ultimately filmed was nothing like the script that Jaeger and Walker wrote together. The two of them found an independent producer... A guy named Scott Rudin. Uh, Rudin was familiar with some of the existing work from these guys. Rudin at this point had already become one of the biggest independent producers in Hollywood. He'd been responsible for both of Barry Sonnenfeld's Adams Family movies, uh, The Firm with Tom Cruise, The Truman Show, Clueless, Ransom with uh, Mel Gibson, Sister Act 2, a whole bunch of other stuff. He also went on to do a whole bunch of other movies like Bringing Out the Dead, Angela's Ashes, the two Zoolander movies, School of Rock, blah, blah, blah. He even did, um, he had he had a, a, a production part, played a part producing uh, the first Captain America and several of Wes Anderson's movies. So Scott Rudin took this script that, that Walker and Yeager wrote around to several studios and eventually got Paramount interested in, in actually making it. But for some reason, even though they bought the script, Paramount's producers later decided that they didn't want to make it the way Yeager and Walker had written it. They didn't like the idea of it being a slasher film. They wanted to do something else with it, and it ended up kind of getting held up in development hell. Uh, a few years later, or at some point later, the CEO of Paramount at the time, a woman named Sherry, Sherry Lansing, started revisiting the idea, found it, I guess, in their production vault or something. She got together with one of the studio's producers, Adam Schroeder. Schroeder had worked with Burton on Edward Scissorhands as a studio executive with 20th Century Fox back in 1990. So Schroeder suggested to Sherry Lansing, the CEO, that they use Burton to direct an adaptation of Sleepy Hollow. So Burton was brought in. He started working on rewrites. They decided to keep Jaeger involved with the film. They told him that he wasn't going to be allowed to contribute to the script or to direct the movie. They wanted him to to take over as the physical effects supervisor, which is a role he decided to sign on for. Burton started working on rewrites, but couldn't quite get anything they they like. They they was having trouble with it. So um, Scott Rudin, this producer suggested that they bring in a guy named Tom Stoppard. Tom Stoppard was was born in the Czech Republic, um, but has lived most of his adult life in the UK. He's helped co-write a lot of stuff. He, he and Terry Gilliam and a guy named Charles McCowan co-wrote the script for an amazing satirical movie called Brazil. He also wrote, Stoppard also wrote the first draft of the screenplay for a Spielberg movie called Empire of the Sun, which is incredible. He did the final touches on the script for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. 
helped adapt a, a John Le Carre novel called The Russia House for a 1990 adaptation that I think uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, Sean Connery were in, a whole bunch of stuff. So it was really between uh, Burton and this, this writer, Tom Stoppard, that the scripts got rewritten in, into what we eventually got for this film. So Walker got the written by credit, even though this was really nothing at all like what he'd written. And uh, kind of went from there because of a, a catch with the WGA, I guess. Stopper didn't get any, any writing credit for the film. But that's how basically they ended up with the script for what they ended up with. Johnny Depp obviously was Burton's first choice for casting. Who would have thought a movie directed by Tim Burton with Johnny Depp in it, music by Danny Elfman? I mean, who's Preposterous. Yeah, who's ever heard of such a thing? They've only done that five or six separate times. <laughs> um, but um, But the studio actually forced forced Burton to try out some other actors. The three who were commonly mentioned are Liam Neeson, fine actor, but would have been a bad choice. Brad Pitt, also fine actor, but would have been a bad choice. The third person, the third candidate uh, that Paramount made Burton do a casting call with was uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> would have been a bad choice. It would have been. I would admit that. I do think, well... I don't know. I think in a slightly... Not a great actor. No, God, how horrible. No, I mean, look, in, if they'd played this slightly differently, I think he would have been an amazing choice to play Ichabod. He wasn't the right choice to play Ichabod in Tim Burton's version of this story. Johnny Depp absolutely was, but... You don't see him telling the Headless Horseman that he drank your milkshake. Milkshake, right? <laughs> He's so incredible, though. I mean, I think if somebody did a slightly different version of this story and cast Lewis as, as Ichabod, especially at this point in his life... I mean, he's, he's tall, he's lanky, he just fits the description. He's such a fucking good actor. But but yeah, yeah anyway, obviously but they... But the way this movie is, I don't see anybody else but Johnny Depp in this no, movie. No, 100%. Just the way Ichabod's portrayed, and we'll get into it, but it's, it's very unique and I love it. It is. I mean, it's very much Depp being Depp in a Burton film. But but yeah, it's perfect. You're right. I mean, in Burton Burton's specific version of Sleepy Hollow could not have been done with anyone else playing Ichabod other than Johnny Depp. Real, real quick, a couple other easy notes. Um, Depp wanted to parallel the way Ichabod was described as looking in the Washington Irving story, so he kept going to the studio and saying that he wanted um, prosthetic a prosthetic nose, prosthetic ears, and elongated fingers to make himself look more like the description. The man loves prosthetics. He does, and Paramount kept telling him no. <laughs> the thing is, he, he, he actually does legitimately like prosthetics. He does. He has his own prosthetic guy. Right. And when he was in the... Kevin Smith movie Yoga Hosers he had like a small role right. he agreed to do the movie but he said okay but I want to get my prosthetics guy and I want him to give me a fake nose and yeah. put veins on it's like okay like well, and you know that kind of thing's pretty common it's not something most people would think about but a lot of actors and actresses have a preferred makeup person or a preferred effects person or somebody they or a stunt double or something yeah yeah exactly it's usually somebody they've worked with before and that just makes it easier they know each other they know they're gonna like each other's work blah 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 but yeah, Paramount kept telling him no. Depp's, Depp did say, especially to the point Josh was making, and I'm at least paraphrasing here, said, I always thought of Ichabod as a very delicate, fragile person who was maybe a little bit too in touch with his feminine side, like a frightened little girl. <laughs> um, oh my um, God, I love that. Right? And and it was an interesting way to, to play Ichabod's character in the original Washington Irving book was an interesting mix of confidence and fear. I think Depp played up more... A, a, a sort of caricaturized both those elements, but he did it well. 
Um, he said he didn't want to play the character the way a typical action star would, which was the right call. This is not a typical action star part. He said he modeled Ichabod a little bit on um, Basil Rathbone's performance as Sherlock Holmes in 1939. He also used Roddy McDowell as an influence, which I think is hilarious. But uh, but yeah, I mean, that gets us pretty much up to the point where they, they cast the film. I love it. Thank you very much, Steve. <laughs> this movie was a big deal when it came out. Yeah. It was made at a very large budget, $70 million, and it made $207 million. So it was successful. It was a big production. They had some big names attached. A lot of work went into it, as you described, and it paid off for them. There's one other, one other quick note, because I know you'll appreciate it. They thought they were going to film this in upstate New York, and they actually picked out a, the town that was basically the basis for Sleepy Hollow in the book as their shooting location. And they ended up deciding that they, they just couldn't make what they wanted to do work anywhere real, and that they were going to need to film this in sound stages, at least mostly in sound stages. So they ended up picking a facility in, in England that had only recently become available to shoot in because um, episode one had just finished shooting in those sound stages. <laughs> so they used the same, at least some of the same stages as episode one, like within weeks of Lucas being done using them. So on, <laughs> on that note, there's what, two two prequel actors in this movie? Right? Yeah, three. Ian McDermott's in it. Oh, there's three? Oh, yeah. I'll get to it, my friend. I assure you. Well, sh uh, God damn it. Well, shit. That ruins my joke. I was going to say, good. Twice the pride, <laughs> double the fall. Fuck <laughs> it up. It is a little interesting if you look up what McDermott had to say about doing both films back to back, because he was in them back to back as far as his career went. Because, you know, when, when they did episode one, the sets were completely filled with blue screens and there was very little physical for them to interact with, where in this movie, they built almost everything in those sets. It's, oh, yeah. It's kind of interesting to read about. They built a town. Yeah. Yeah. They physically built the town, right. which is amazing. It really is. It's one of the largest scale indoor sets like that I've ever heard of. One of the few others I can think of that would have been that difficult is um, Ridley Scott's Legend. They basically built a third of a forest inside another soundstage in England so they could film the forest scenes. Yeah. I fucking love that movie. Oh, and uh, uh, what's that? God damn it. What's that movie called? Once from the Heart, the Coppola movie. They built like half the a fantasy version of Las Vegas Strip inside a soundstage. It was incredible. Yeah. Anyway. I got a bit of info for you, Steve. Let's mm. see if you already know this. Let's see what kind of connoisseur you actually are, my friend. <laughs> this was one of the last laser discs ever made. Yes. Did you know that? Yes, absolutely. And it's an expensive disc to get because of that. I'm sure you have it already, though. I do. Right? <laughs> <laughs> now, here's the question. Here's the trivia. Do you know what the other last laser disc was? There was two of them. Bringing out the dead. Damn. Yeah, I've got both of them. And that's why he's on this pod, everybody. <laughs> right? Those, And if we're going to get really specific, you're going to test me in my laser disc shit. I got to call you out here. Those were just the last two released in the U.S. Ooh. They were not the last two released ever. The not the two last in Argentina, which I'm sure you know. What was the last <laughs> laser disc in Argentina, Steve? No, I, actually, that probably would have been the same too. But the, they continued publishing laser discs for Japan for a couple of years after. And I believe uh, Tokyo Raiders is the last feature film that ever actually got republished on Laserdisc. A classic. Tokyo Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's it's a really good Laserdisc. I like this one. 
Is that what you watched in preparation for this? You watched the laser? Disc? I actually did watch the laser. <laughs> I've got it there. I may as well watch it. That's one of those movies. There's a few that I own just because there's, there's something special about the release. And I own that one really just because it was one of the last two they released in the U S yeah. Very cool. Let's get into sleepy hollow. The plot of the movie itself. <laughs> It's an old, it's a period piece, right? Where we learn that pretty quickly, I think. In the 1700s, we see the Van Garrett carriage. Do we not, Josh? Yes. So Van Garrett is writing a letter. Should we establish what this is right now or wait till later? Feel free, man. So he's writing a last will and testament. He's played by the famous Martin Landau who's trying to get ahead of the situation, get the hell out of Dodge. Get it? Because he loses his head. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) There's a nice little sequence when he's in his carriage. His carriage driver loses his head. He decides to, like, jump into the cornfield. I will say the way Marty... Marty Landau, that's what I call him, is executed is just like this flat, boring shot, and it's a little lackluster compared to some of the other deaths compared to the I did like him peeking out the carriage window and noticing the driver's head was gone. It's cool. cool. It's cool. (laughs) It's setting up this uh, supernatural killer and the time period and kind of the events to unfold. Uh, One of the things that caught my eye, though, and I'm sure you guys noticed this, was the Jack Skellington cameo. I I totally yeah. have that as a note as well, Corey. I know you noticed the the pumpkin scarecrow. Oh yeah, that, that's my dude right there. I fucking <laughs> love Nightmare Before Christmas. Fuck yeah, I do. I, I don't know if you're being facetious. I'm not. Like, I, big time. Yeah, huge fan. I was a weird kid for liking that. I remember the uh, the Disney movie wars of the '90s, and it was like either liked The Lion King or The Nightmare Before Christmas. Nightmare Before Christmas. Also, day, I, yeah. In fact, I've got that one on Laserdisc too because it came in a huge box set with a, a hardback book. The book by itself is worth more than the Laserdisc is. It's crazy. Damn. It's a beautiful book. It's all about the production. Really cool. Yeah. But yeah, it opens with some uh, beheadings. Some people are killed. And then we shift gears and go to New York where we get to see Ichabod Crane played by Johnny Depp. Every time I hear Ichabod Crane, I want to say Ichabod Clay from Clay Fighter. But <laughs> Fuck yes, I haven't heard anyone mention Clay Fighter in years. I loved that game. It was ridiculous, but I enjoyed the shit out of it. That one in Primal Rage with the dinosaurs fight. Yes. Oh, yeah. Primal Rage was my shit. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Two awful fucking fighting games from back in the day that we liked for some reason anyway. They were so different. I think that's what it was with the weird modeled characters. Yeah. Primal Rage had like the... You had the fart as a weapon yes. and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I liked a lot of the traditional. I played a lot of SNK and Capcom fighters, too. But if I saw Primal Rage or, or the other in, in an arcade when I was a kid, they would definitely get a buck or so out of me. <laughs> sure. So Ichabod, he's a, a constable in the police force. And we kind of learned that like in New York at this time where he is in this story, the the police force are both like incompetent and barbaric. So not much has changed, am I right? (laughs) Just a moment, if I may. We do not yet know the cause of death. 
When you find them in the river, cause of death is drowning. Possibly so, if there is water in the lungs, but by pathology, we might be able to determine whether or not he was dead before he went into the river. I will need to examine the body. Cut him up. Are we heathens? Well, Corey, if you find a, a body in the river, the cause yeah. of death was drowning. It was <laughs> actually, they never explain this. I imagine a lot of people would have learned this, but it was actually illegal in most, mo- much of the world for a long time to perform an autopsy on someone. They, they, they didn't understand, a lot of people didn't understand what the medical benefits were and, and didn't understand that it could actually be used as a, a method of detection. And I think there were, in some cases, where we're like, religious catches where they said you weren't supposed to do that kind of thing they considered it you know i totally have in my notes that ichabod stully want to use devil science yeah yeah he wants to use he wants to autopsy the body and the the others like devil science and they they think it's horrifying that he'd want to want to cut up a body in the first place but there really was a point where it it was actually illegal to do that for a long time some of the earliest physicians to perform them in england literally had to resort to buying cadavers on the black market from people and performing the autopsies in secret just so that they could they could study the bodies. It's crazy. So Ichabod pleads with Judge Dooku that they need to modernize a little bit. The millennium is almost upon us. In a few months, we will be living in the 19th century, yet our courts continue to rely on medieval devices of torture. Stand down! I stand up. For sense and justice. Our jails overflow with men and women convicted on confessions worth no more than this one. Constable Crane, this is a song that we have heard from you more than once. <laughs> Can we just talk about the fact for a second that Christopher Lee's just about the greatest thing to happen almost any movie he's in? <laughs> he's Absolutely. So, and the rest of the cast is movie's good, no knock, but Christopher Lee is just so fantastic. It's only in the movie for three minutes. He's got one of the coolest fucking voices ever. He does! And he's Saruman. Everything sounds like silk coming out of his mouth. <laughs> he does. I mean, it's so, so fantastic. I wish I wish there were still some way to put him and Vincent Price in a movie together. God. You want him to be digitally added to a movie, Steve? No, no, I'm so against that. <laughs> get, get on it, Disney. <laughs> but, I mean, and to have him and Michael Gambon both in the film is fantastic. I'm a huge Gambon fan also. Well, Christopher Lee tasks... Ichabod Crane with going to the town of Sleepy Hollow and investigating a recent string of murders, specifically people that have been beheaded. They mostly just want to get rid of him. Yeah, because he's too science. They're like, shut up, science bitch. Exactly. <laughs> and he's so he's so hard about wanting to do the science stuff that it's gotten to the point where Christopher Lee, the judge, is telling him basically either you're going to go to this little town where we don't have to deal with you and investigate these ridiculous murders or I'm going to throw you in a jail cell just so we don't have to deal with you anymore. Just because we don't like you. Right. Because that's the way we run the law around here. Right? We're tired of hearing about your science shit. (laughs) (laughs) So Ichabod does travel to the town of Sleepy Hollow. That's where we get the opening credits. We get to... uh, of course, learn that Danny Elfman is scoring this movie. How, how unusual. <laughs> That's what the viewer learns. It's interesting. I watched some of the behind the scenes, not all of it, but in some of the behind the scenes, I'm hearing the Sleepy Hollow score, and then at moments, I swear to God, I'm hearing the Congo score. And I'm wondering if that's just the Sleepy Hollow score, but maybe they tempt with 
Congo music. Oh man! And then some of the basis for the score was that because there's parts that sound very similar right. in the behind the scenes stuff I watched. I didn't go back and try to fit it into the movie, but temp scores are weird. <laughs> Never in all my fucking days would I ever think of somebody comparing Congo and Sleepy Hollow together. This isn't a sequel to Congo. <laughs> <laughs> Where was the scene with the gorilla asking for a drink? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Green drop, baby. <laughs> Green drop drink. <laughs> All right, so the, there's a pretty cool travel scene where, we, where you get to, like, I think what we learn is, like, the atmosphere of the movie. We're kind of, like, going into the mind of Tim Burton as he travels. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely very Burton-esque, although he also managed, I think, to capture a lot of the way Washington was trying to describe this this town, this village in the book, because it, he, he, it's supposed to be set inside of a valley. It's a very, very old settlement. It's an extension of an original Dutch settlement from really before the U.S. was even the U.S., and Washington in the in the books described in the book described it as being sort of beset in fog and a, and a sort of it, not an evil place but a permanently spooky one that was definitely constantly surrounded by sort of pseudo supernatural. And I, I think they they captured at least some of that feeling there, for sure. Yeah. Uh, he arrives at this party right, a big manor. There's a couple silhouettes making out. A party going on where apparently. You can win a kiss by Christina Ricci, which I think is a pretty cool game. <laughs> right. And they introduce in this scene a character who was hugely central to the plot of the original story and who is virtually useless in the context of this film. Brom, played by Casper uh, Van Dien. <laughs> what, what's Johnny Rico had a bigger role in the book? Oh, yeah. And Johnny Rico's character in the in the story is in, is like the core character in the in the story. He and Ichabod are sort of competing for for Katrina. And Katrina is a little more interested in Ichabod because he's educated and nice, where Brahm is this kind of this giant jock douchebag. And um, there's an implication throughout the story that the Headless Horseman isn't physically real and that it's actually Brahm in a costume just accosting people. And the story sort of ends with, with Ichabod getting so frightened he leaves town and they leave it – Washington left it sort of open whether – there's a final attack, whether the, that attack was really the horseman or just Brom trying to get rid of him. Yeah, that, that character is through, like, in almost every scene of the original story. You see him here and, like, two other times in the movie. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Shortly after his arrival, Ichabod Crane does meet the, uh, the pillars of the community, including uh, Mr. and Mrs. Van Tassel. Steve... Who are these people? We get to meet some big names, don't we? Yeah, yeah. So we've got Baltus Van Tassel, Michael Gambon, and his relatively recent wife, not his, not his first wife. Coming off the hot movie Toys a few <laughs> right? years before. Yes. Gambon's been in so much stuff. He's, he's been in some really great movies. He was in a Peter Greenaway movie that's really fantastic. But uh, Baltus is at this point the wealthiest guy in town he's made a tremendous amount of money on on farmland and is sort of like the guy everyone else in town goes to to like talk out problems and get thoughts from and he's like the most respected member of the community his first wife died recently we believe of some sort of unspecified disease and Baltus is now remarried to the woman that was his first wife's nurse with him in the room, we have the um, the town notary and uh, Alfred. Alfred, right? Um, Michael Go from, uh, of course, the 
for <laughs> Batman movies right. of the 80s and 90s. I can't help but think of him as Alfred. Absolutely. We've also got the town's minister, played by Jeffrey Jones, who had an, an unfortunate series of events. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> um, after this, and whose career is basically non-existent at this point. And uh, who else is there with him? It's the Richard Notre- Griffith. That's right. Yeah, and he's the physician? He's the magistrate. Magistrate, that's right. And he yeah. is, of course, famous from the Harry Potter movies being the... I don't remember the last name. It's either like Dudsley or Durdsley or something. That's right. When the G- shitheads that Harry Potter lives with. And Gambon too. Gambon came on from the second Harry Potter film forward to replace... Dumble Snatch. Yeah, he was, as Dumbledore. Oh, yeah, that's right. To replace... Uh, Dumbledine. Yeah. What was the other actor's name? Why am I blanking on his name? He was famous. He was in so many... He was in uh, fucking Unforgiven with... Clint Eastwood and whatever. Uh, Richard Harris. Richard Harris was originally Dumbledore, and when he passed away, they brought on Gambon to replace him. Anyway, yeah. Dumbledong. Dumbledong. Dumbledongs? What? We can't forget. <laughs> the greatest of them all. Sith Lord himself. Yes. Sheev Palpatine. <laughs> Ian McDermott as the doctor. No. 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 You are the this movie really needed an apprentice. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's just nice to see him, isn't it? Like, he's it is. great. I really love this guy. He's a fantastic actor, and he made this, uh, uh, yeah, like we said before, he had just finished shooting his portions of episode one when he when he got cast to do this, and then went right back to the same soundstage. <laughs> <laughs> but Josh, they tell Ichabod about the story of the Headless Horseman, which he is skeptical of, but uh, why don't you tell us Kind of like what that story is. I guess I'm walking into this story, huh? <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody. You can find me at Review Inc. <laughs> or type Review D-O-O-D into your search bar. This will be Josh's last episode. The greatest character actor of our time. <laughs> so we've got German Christopher Walken here, who presumably it. fought in the American Revolutionary War. Against the U.S. of goddamn A. Uh, He killed a couple people, chopped off a head or two, and apparently he was so bloodthirsty that he filed his teeth. You gotta gotta be pretty goddamn bloodthirsty to file your teeth. I mean, eating salads at that point, I can only imagine just a goddamn nightmare. (laughs) But... (laughs) Christopher Walken survives solely on a diet of raw meat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess one winter he meets his end, they shoot his fucking horse down, they chase him into the nearby woods, he's probably wondering at this point if all those decapitations were worth it. He totally stumbles across two little girls in the woods gathering firewood. They totally sell him out, one of them snaps a branch. (laughs) He's like, shh. And she, like, breaks a fucking twig. It's like, you bitch. Yeah, immediately. <laughs> what a bitch, right? It's also what weird that this bloodthirsty guy wouldn't just kill the two kids. I guess they're not going to do that in a movie, but... Right! So bloodthirsty, but yeah, just... <laughs> sh- sh- be quiet, please. So, the American soldiers find him. He, he fights, goes down fighting, dick in hand. <laughs> they decapitate him and bury him at some tree, I guess. Yeah, in the original story, he got his head blown off by a cannonball. 
I'm surprised they didn't do for this, but well, whatever. I, I guess plot related reasons, like you gotta have the skull. That's true. And you gotta yeah. have the, the two little girls see him first. Yeah. Yeah. I like his fighting in that scene a lot. Well, I like yeah. the way he looks. He looks like a fucking lunatic, and he is a fucking lunatic. He is. When, you know, they, real quick, the Hessians were a real group. They were actually employed by the, the British royal military during the American Revolution as they were intended to be used as help to reinforce the English troops when they realized they were losing. Um, these guys were German mercenaries. They'd fight for anybody. They were known for being extremely adept soldiers and probably not quite as evil as they make walking out to be in this film, but they were they were real, real nasty guys. Well, Ichabod thinks this is all a crock of shit. There, <laughs> yeah. there are no ghosts. <laughs> right. He does. But, I mean, how good does Christopher Walken look in that outfit? Like, that's like a super villain costume that he wears. It is. I mean, he's ridiculous, I think, but in a way that I, I find perfectly acceptable. I love it. He has that big collar. It's all black. It, yeah. it seriously does look like a super villain outfit. And like the coattails are almost like a cape hanging down. Right. He has a sword in one hand and a small axe in the other hand. And he's got a really smooth fighting style, does a lot of spins. I think it's really fucking cool. <laughs> I was going to say the fighting choreography in this movie is really good. And I can't think of another Tim Burton film with solid fighting choreography like this. Like the Batman films aren't particularly spectacular. <laughs> yeah. You know, and even Burton is admitted in interviews that he wasn't sure he was entirely comfortable with it, that he doesn't consider himself an action director, that, that he, you know, part of the reason his Batman films ended up being the way they did, which and I love them, but part of the reason they ended up being the way they did and is because he, he actually tried to avoid a lot of the action just because he recognized that he wasn't the best at it. But yeah. Yeah, he's not the guy. No. No, <laughs> and I mean. And then right after this movie, action movie. Yeah. Planet of the Apes. <laughs> yeah, which is like, it's weird that he would say all that, admit that, and then go right on to Planet of the Apes. So what's your next movie? Oh, huge action blockbuster, Planet of the Apes. <laughs> right. The twist is going to be better than the original. With Mark Wahlberg in it. <laughs> Like, oh god, that final battle at the end of the movie is so fucking stupid. <laughs> Hope you like wire work, kids. <laughs> oh god. One thing I, I, I think is worth mentioning though, and I think is interesting, is that, that they had multiple studios, including ILM, help them with the digital portions of the effects for this movie, but Burton had not been completely happy. I don't really understand why, because I love the way the aliens look, but he hadn't been completely happy with the CG work in Mars Attacks and was concerned about the idea of using too much CG for the film. So he insisted that anything they could do physically with physical effects for this, that they do that way and minimize how much computers got yeah. used. This yeah. movie benefits from dialing back the CG. It does. It's there, but yeah. it's used in such a way that it is just pretty much transparent. Like you, In a lot of cases, you can't tell that it's being used, with some exceptions that yeah. we're going to talk about. And that's, Namely one moment, but I want to save it. Right. That's so, the best way to do it overall. Oh, go ahead, Josh. Oh, I, I was just going to ask. Um, I'm sure you know this. Who is the actor that does the horseman's choreography? That is Darth Maul himself, yeah. my friend Ray Park. That is the Holy third Sith Lord in the movie. Fuck. Yeah, A secret apprentice? Yeah, and he, and he and McDermott got to rejoin each other. Yeah, so the apprentice is there. <laughs> and mm. uh, Yeah, Ray Park, man, that's... So out of all the disappointing things about episode one, the fact that they get one fight sequence out of him and then he dies. God damn, man. What about the Clone Wars, Steve? I mean, the Clone Wars is awesome, but it's not the same. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's not Ray Park anymore, is it? No. What about Solo, a Star Wars story? 
it's I I I, I don't know I. Maybe I, in, like in the, I know you're more. I, I do too. I know you're more integrated into the fan community than I am. Even I, I've heard a lot of people talk shit about Solo, but I thought it was fun. It wasn't the best Star Wars movie of all of them or anything, but it was fun. You got the Ray Park cameo. Yeah, in my opinion, yeah. I think it's the best Disney Star Wars. I'll fight you there, my friend. Yeah, I mean uh-huh. it's up there for me. I I I, I think Rogue One's the best for me. But, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would say Solo is my second. So Ichabod is very skeptical of this whole headless horseman fairy tale bullshit. He's a man of science, goddammit. <laughs> yeah, and you know, they make a point of telling you that this takes place in 1799, which is like 20 years later than the original story. But Depp's character, Ichabod, is hinging on that. It's the turn of a new century. We need to be different than, the, than we were before. You know? Murder investigations of the future. Moida. <laughs> Moida. <laughs> Moida. Speaking of which, there is another killing that very night. And the next day, uh, Johnny Depp, Ichabod Crane, does go out to investigate for the first time. And his investigation is, uh, I think it's pretty basic, but there's something very memorable about this scene. And that is Johnny Depp mugging at the camera with these huge goggles on. I love the goggles. I was going to say, for some reason, this scene is burned into my head. It's yes. because it's the it, it that scene is the complete embodiment of what you get when you put Johnny Depp and Tim Burton together in a great way. I love that part. It's amazing. But like that's that yeah. scene is just the two of them being together, that's what happens. Yeah. He's got a bag <laughs> full of like beakers and vials and shit. Devices of my own invention. Yeah. <laughs> I mean his investigation is is it's cool, but like it's really Johnny Depp for me that oh, I like. Yeah. Like him describing what happens and he's like he rode down, and like he's doing like the horse trot. He turned around. But why? Interesting. Very interesting. What is? In headless corpse cases of this sort, the head is removed to prevent identification of the body. But we know this was Jonathan Masbeth. Precisely. So why was the head removed? Why? Right. You have moved the body? I did. You must never move the body. Why not? Because. The stride is gigantic. The attacker rode Masbeth down, turned his horse, came back, came back to clean the head. Depp is one of those actors, and I think he's a good actor. He's got some some uh, breadth to him as an actor, but he very much like many other good actors, he always brings a little bit of himself to almost every part. There are very, very few Johnny Depp parts where you don't see Depp in the part. He says there's a powerful singular thrust to the neck, which makes it sound like somebody <laughs> fucked the neck hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot, a lot of Deppisms here. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's kind of investigating, you know, there's obviously something is not quite right. The body has some very strange signs things that you normally would not see if someone got their head lobbed off, like the how the wound was immediately cauterized and some other things that he's still working out in his head. A lightsaber. That, oh my god. That would it, do it. It was Maul. It was Maul. It was Darth Maul, goddammit. <laughs> but later that night, Ichabod does get attacked himself, doesn't he, Steve? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, he is attacked by someone. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, Ichabod has a little incident. You know? Yeah, I mean, why don't you run us through it? Yeah, he's on his way. He's on his way back. And uh, he's crossing um, a covered bridge across a river. If you listen really closely, he stops for a minute to listen to like the sound of the frogs and the crickets. And you can actually hear them sort of whispering Ichabod, Ichabod, when you listen to the sound. They're not saying Budweiser. I've never noticed that. That's a nice touch. It is a nice touch. I like that one. But they're not saying Budweiser. Those commercials are fucking funny. But anyway, uh, so yeah, and then he he starts to cross this bridge and realizes that there's something else there with him and uh, eventually finds that it appears to be the Headless Horseman. (laughs) Wielding a flaming pumpkin. A flaming pumpkin. It's a very uh, old school Green Goblin. Type thing to be yeah, done. Yeah, he gets pumpkin bombed. It's pumpkin bombed. <laughs> now, it's been a long time since I read it, but I think that piece they did take from the story. I think in the story, Irving wrote that he he rides around with the pumpkin in place of his head, searching for the head to replace the pumpkin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I remember that image now that you mention it. <laughs> right. I was going to say, I love the, the, the jack o' lantern look yes. in this scene. It's just a minor shame that it's never played up, like, for real, and this is just a Casper Van Dien prank. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, the, uh, Ichabod gets accosted, and you find out it, later on this one wasn't really the horseman, but it does open up the first instance of noticing that the horseman doesn't necessarily kill every person he comes across, which makes you, excuse me, it makes you kind of ask why that's the case. You know? I want to kind of talk about just briefly before I go into the next part about the way this movie looks. Now, obviously, it looks like a Tim Burton movie, but I love how like desaturated the colors are. It almost makes it feel at times like it's a black and white movie, like the whites and the blacks are very striking, right? It's not like a black and gray movie, like not in that way, but it feels like strong blacks and strong whites in a lot of the scenes with bright, vivid red blood. Right. Yeah, they, they did a really nice job with both the production design and the color timing for the final production. Um, the guy that did the production design, Rick Henricks, is also an effects artist and an, art, an effects artist and art director and a film producer. Um, he's worked with Depp several times before, including on the Pirates of the Caribbean films. But he's done he's had an interesting career. He did Ang Lee's version of the Hulk. Mm. Um, yeah, I like it. He also did uh, some of the production design for Nightmare Before Christmas. He worked with Burton on um, the short Vincent and the original Frankenweenie, the stop motion Frankenweenie. Yeah, I know you're fans of those. Right, I love them. Yeah, he also worked on Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, unfortunately also Planet of the Apes. But, uh, Uh-oh. Right? <laughs> but then, you know, some of the better stuff, Ghostbusters 2, uh, Fargo, The Big Lebowski. He actually did The Last Jedi, the production design for Last Jedi. Okay. Um, it's a good-looking movie. Yeah. Yeah, so he's he's great, and he did a really good job helping them with the production design of this film. And then, obviously, as you said, and when they got into stuff like the color timing for the post-production, it's, yeah, it all came together really nicely. I think the it's not a bad film otherwise, but the way the film presents itself and looks is one of the highlights of it. This is a great movie to have in the background during, like, Halloween festivities. Yeah. It's very eerie. It has, like, the good mood, but it's not, like, a straight horror movie with, like, tons of jump scares or, like, I don't know, just, like, ridiculous deaths. It's not that. It's it's a atmospheric. Yeah, yeah exa- I like that. I, you're absolutely right, and I, I enjoy it. It's one of, the, one of the things I like about this movie is it's sort of a horror story, but it's it's not the kind of horror story that... 
like so many of them are either leaning back hard on those surprises, like you said, or or just sheer violence. I know I bring them up every time we talk about horror, but stuff stuff like the hostile movies, where it really just becomes about you watching people get tortured to death. Like I'm not offended by the idea of those movies existing, but there's nothing interesting about that. It's just gross out horror. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Those movies suck. Right. <laughs> I am more of an atmosphere guy myself. And like Corey was saying, the atmosphere of this movie is so good. Careful what you say. Eli Roth will come for you with a baseball bat. Probably. That bash dude. your fucking head in. Yeah. I mean, anybody that would make those films is somebody you probably got to be scared of. <laughs> he seems like a nice guy, though. Yeah, he probably is in real life. I don't know. Eli, want to have you as a guest on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's where we're getting at. That's our way of inviting you. I think I'd rather have Zack Snyder, to be honest. <laughs> Never mind, Eli. We don't want you. We only want Zack Snyder. Right. <laughs> Josh, why don't you tell us about Ichabod's childhood flashbacks, which come up throughout the movie? But we can compress to one uh, segment of this podcast, I believe. Yeah. His childhood flashbacks are the most Tim Burton thing I've ever seen in my life. They pretty much, yeah, pretty hard Tim Burton right there. Yeah, so he has memories of his mom who does weird shit in the woods. Maybe she floats in the woods. Who knows? I, like, I I guess that's his brain interpreting that. <laughs> but in my head, I, I like to imagine she, she just floats a little bit on occasion. Not a big deal. But it's definitely not witchcraft. Yeah, I float. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I float. Don't fucking worry about it. <laughs> but eventually... The the father finds, like, dirt drawings or, like, sand symbols, if you prefer, which he takes to be, you know, like, witchcraft. And the movie kind of hints that it, it might have been. But whatever, Ichabod has memories of his mom's death in this, like, Iron Maiden type of fucking thing. What would you call that? There actually is a name for that now that it's been brought up. Um, With spikes on the inside. It reminds me of the yeah. thing from Blade. It, 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 well, those were real. They really did exist. They were they were used as torture devices in medieval Europe in the, during the Dark Ages for a long time. And now I can't remember the proper name. They really are called something like the Spiky Man or some shit like that. But yeah, it's, 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 like, a, it's like a body-shaped metal casket with spikes inside. And when you close it, it closes just tightly enough that the points are, are just touching your skin. So if you move at all, you're going to get stabbed. It's, it's, they're horrible. Yeah. yeah. The whole torture room setup is pretty fucking frightening. Yes. And then when he looks inside the eye slit and he just like sees the eyes with like the blood dripping and she like kind of like nicely says like Ichabod, oh, like, yeah, it's a, it's a good moment. It's, right. But you can start to see like the 2000s Tim Burton kind of seeping through. It's a little bit big fishy in yeah. the way it looks because the color palette changes. It's meant to be a flashback. It's, it's almost like um, cloudy, right? And then there's like sharp pinks right. in the corners. It's uh, you know, it's it's good. And, I think. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it. Yeah, they would often, not always, but uh, methods like that really were used against like women that were suspected of being witches, both in Europe and in, here in the colonies. They would, they believed that they they had it was okay to do that kind of thing because they were they, they were trying to force the witch to admit to her sins or seek penance and blah 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 you know they would tie him to stakes and burn them and it's, it's fucking crazy but yeah yeah crazy very Burton-esque stuff there well she turned me into a newt <laughs> a newt 
I got better. <laughs> you can find me at reviewing or type review. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We haven't talked much about Christina Ricci as Katrina in this movie, but uh, she is the female lead. Her and Ichabod start to spend some time together uh, around this point in the movie. I am a longtime Christina Ricci fan. We'll, we'll say yeah, we say the word fan. You and every other heterosexual man on the planet. Yeah. Oh, it's not just me. <laughs> right. I love it when people when other guys tell me they're into her as if it's some unique thing. Like like no, you know, other guys may not get it, but I'm into Christina Ricci. Oh, oh really? You must be the only one. I'm into the Christina Ricci type, Steve. Right. Exactly. You know, petite, attractive women. Super hot. Yeah. Uh, I'm into women who I find really attractive. And does she still have that restraining order? on you, Corey? Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> I mean, I'm right there with you, but I, like, and you didn't do it, but it's just, I, I get occasionally, got, and they'll always bring up the Adams family and, you know, they act like it's this unique thing. Like somehow she's this secret sex symbol that, well, and then at this point she was like 12. So that just sounds creepy. Yeah. I'm saying, uh, what, who are these people you're dealing with, Steve? Right. What's going well, on I mean, here? They, 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 you always get the, I've been into her since she was in the Adams family. And if it was, so was everyone else who was 12 when that movie came out, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> like every little boy's crush. Yeah. Exactly. Every, I, including myself, every boy I knew my age liked her in that movie. Like, absolutely. You know, there is a moment where Christina Ritchie is explaining to Ichabod about town drama, like town families and shit like that. And this is just me nitpicking more or less. It's not like a big deal. But I do kind of lose the plot a little bit when she starts throwing around, like, the family names, like the Vans, the the, the Van Garretts, the Van Tassels, the Van yeah. Deans, you know? Yeah, the Van Dams, the Van Helsings, <laughs> the Van Halens. This is a very, very Dutch village, you know? It is, yeah. <laughs> But her performance at the point of this movie that I'm describing where they first start to spend some time together in the woods is a little bit stilted. Like it's okay later on. Yeah. But it just seems a little bit strange. It seemed like maybe she didn't quite know how to manage the accent. This land we're looking at was Van Garrett land given to my father when I was in swaddling clothes. The Van Garretts were the richest family around these parts. When my father brought us to sleepy hollow, Van Garrett set him up with an acre and a broken down cottage. My father worked hard for his family and prospered and built this house. I think you're right. I got the same thing. She's normally very good, and I don't have a problem with great her. Great actress. I'll yeah. say that. Like, she is a great actress, yeah. period. And I don't have any problems with her, the rest of her performance, but I agree with the two of you completely. There's a moment where she's talking to him out in the woods there where she's kind of stilted. Like, she didn't know how to do the act or didn't know quite how to react. And I don't know. It almost felt like, the, not that Burton's neglectful, but it almost felt like she needed a little more direction in that scene. For sure. Yeah. The Cardinal, my favorite. I'd love to have a tame one, but I wouldn't have the heart to cage him. Well, then, I have something for you. Cardinal on one side, an empty cage, and now. You can do magic. Teach me. It is no magic. It is what we call optics. Separate pictures which become one in the spinning. It is truth, but truth is not always appearance.
Ichabod pulls his bird out. <laughs> uh, and the cage that goes with it. <laughs> oh, you guys. Oh, you guys. I'm going to have to keep an eye on you. Two wild and crazy guys. Wild and crazy guys. Oh, that's a reference 90% of the listeners will not understand. Good. That was never that great. Right. I'm going to be honest. People used to quote that shit back in the day. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was funny in its time. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Dana Carvey's best work. Yeah. Was it Dana Carvey? I think it no, was Steve uh, Martin and... Um, Steve Martin and Dan Aykroyd. That's right, right? Whatever. Dan Aykroyd and Steve Martin? I think it was Steve Martin and Martin Short, wasn't it? Whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Who cares? Right? It doesn't, doesn't matter. <laughs> So that night, there is yet another killing. It's uh, Ichabod who catches up with Magistrate Phillips, uh, who's kind of like freaked out. Magistrate Phillips wants to get the fuck out of town and they get attacked. And Ichabod actually sees the Headless Horseman with his own two eyes for a second time. I think he kind of figured out the first one was just a prank, bro. But yeah, this <laughs> time just yeah, he goes prank, to see bro. the magistrate and, and he knows the first time was bullshit. He's like, there is no headless horse. Button. I love pretty much everything about this scene, the atmosphere, the way the mist creeps in, even the timing of the goddamn lightning. I, I, I love it so goddamn much. It is very good. We, we, I, Quickly, we glanced over. There was one moment earlier. The magistrate tells Ichabod, you've only been told about four victims, but there was technically a fifth. And he's not really much more specific than that. And when Ichabod goes to the cemetery to see the bodies, he's able to deduce logically just by looking that one of the female victims had been pregnant at the time of the death. And that's what the magistrate was talking about. Could could have just told him that she was pregnant, like... Saved him the time of cutting open her dead body. <laughs> Ichabod convinces them to let him autopsy this woman where he confirms that she was pregnant and, and counts the baby's next victim. But the magistrate won't tell Ichabod who the father was or anything else. So part of the reason Ichabod's gone to track the magistrate down is because he wants more information. He wants to know who the kid's father was. He's still insistent that the, that the, the father might be the suspect and that there's, there's no such thing as a headless horseman. And then the, the magistrate shows him a talisman he wears around his neck that is supposed to somehow protect him from the Headless Horseman. Yeah, the talisman written by Stephen King. This will protect me. <laughs> Should have used the running man written by Richard Bachman. Yeah, God damn it. It was Bachman. It was Bachman the whole time. <laughs> so when Phillips gets beheaded... It is a fucking really cool effect. I saw how they did it. It's like they had a robot basically with a recreation of this dude's head. They had it set so that at the right timing, it would spin around like the head would do a 360 before the body buckles and falls over. And it's really fucking cool. It is super cool. It's like, such a good effect. Yes. Yeah. I Like I... I appreciate that computers allow them to do certain things that are just outright impossible with practical effects. But at the same time, I think one of the downsides to the prevalence and power and relative cheapness of computers for the production industry is that it's it's made them a little lazy. It's just so much easier to achieve a lot of these effects in CG that that and so much cheaper that that's the way they end up doing it when it really would have looked better as a physical and I, 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 we've talked about this before, but the physical effects, although they will age, 
don't age nearly as rapidly or as poorly as the CG, you know? CG, even if it looks great when they do it, rarely ever, rarely ever holds up. There were a few standout examples we've mentioned. Jurassic Park's held up remarkably well. T2, The Abyss, hold up remarkably well. But even among big budget movies, that's rarely ever the case. You look at the CG now, even in some of the older Star Wars movies, and that's, that's fucking ILM. And even still, some of the, some of the CG just doesn't quite look so nice anymore. Well, Tim Burton would agree with you, which is why in Planet of the Apes, we're going back to guys in costumes. Right. This one's going to be a hit. Well, you know, it, I, I thought the least the ape makeup looked good. The movie itself's not good, but the ape makeup wasn't bad. It was great. Yeah. The ape makeup was actually fucking it phenomenal. Was, and I think they got nominated for a few awards for that. Uh, but yeah, Phillips is killed. Horseman doesn't attack Ichabod Crane. But man, that head spin, that head lob, fucking love it, man. It's awesome. This really freaks out Ichabod Crane. Yeah, as like, it would. I like his reactions to stuff. He's like so fucking frantic. Like, <laughs> he's just great. It was a headless horseman. You must not excite yourself. But it was a headless horseman. Of course it was. That's why you were here. No, you must believe me. It was a horseman, a dead one. Headless. I know, I know. You don't know because you were not there. It's all true. Well, of course it is. I told you. Everyone told you. I saw him he doesn't quit though and kind of the town elders think he's he's done for like he doesn't want to stay here anymore he's gonna leave the town he basically just locks himself in his room for a day (laughs) yeah panicking under the blanket right (laughs) but his resolve kind of kicks in and he does decide to continue the investigation even though now he knows he's investigating the paranormal essentially he treats it like uh, it's a detective case of uh, of a human anyway. He's like, right, there's got to be a way yeah. uh, to figure out what's going on and a way to solve it. Just yeah. like there would be if it was a, a regular uh, flesh and blood killer. So him and uh, this guy called Young Masbeth, whose parents were killed. His or, father. His father was Yeah, killed. they never tell you where his mother went. His father was one of the, was supposed to be standing night's guard over the town. And he's one of the earlier victims we see. And uh, Ichabod had seen him and, his, and, the, and the brother talking earlier in the film. Yeah. So the, because the kid's dad is dead, the kid decides to help Ichabod. And I, I don't know, it just becomes like his little like helper, helper boy. <laughs> I don't know what to call him. Right, assistant. The mm-hmm. Robin to his Batman. Yeah. Yeah. With less bare legs. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve, these two, they go into the woods. They're investigating. They find an old spooky secluded cave. Yeah, the two of them, so Depp or Ichabod and the little Nazbeth kid go to the, the woods to a cave to visit the local witch. Every town's got one. Right. And, uh, you know, they believe if something supernatural is going on, this witch is going to be the conduit they need to help figure out the logistics of it. But Ichabod, who up till this point has insisted that nothing supernatural can even exist, is so afraid of this witch, he makes the kid basically be body armor for him. He uses him as a shield (laughs) while he's got a gun in the other hand. Right. That's so fucked up. And he drags him in, and the witch promptly says, I'm going to help you out, but the kid's going to go out, got to go outside, because this shit's going to get freaky. (laughs) (laughs) She tells the kid, get out, no matter what you hear, do not come back in here. Yeah, she's like, the other will come. And I was like, where is he coming? Right. Yeah. So she she then proceeds to chain herself up, 
has to tell Ichabod... Some kind of ritual, yeah. Right? Yeah, starts performing a ritual. She has to tell Ichabod multiple times to shut the fuck up, and he won't. <laughs> I, I hate these scenes. It's the one part of this movie that actually bugs me a little bit. They, anytime they write a scene like this, there's always one character who needs to stop talking who won't stop talking. And, like, it's a joke at, at first, like, when she says you really need to stop talking, but then he just keeps doing it over and over to the point where I wanted to reach through the screen and go, like, will you shut the fuck up now? Please stop talking. But, uh, but yeah. And she, she, she summons a spirit that basically tells him what's going on. <laughs> right. So he's kind of, like, learning about the, um, the supernatural elements of all this. But this movie tries to do something that Tim Burton did in another movie, doesn't it, Steve? Does it? It tries to recreate the Large Marge jump scare. Oh, it's true. When every time you see, I see it, I think Large Marge. You're absolutely right. But they do it with CG. And it's lame. Right, this, this is the part when I was saying the CG does not look good. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't hate it, but it's certainly not nearly as endearing as Pee-wee. I mean, fuck, is that a great moment or what? I, I was friendly with a guy for, he's a really talented drummer. I have no idea what happened and I haven't spoken to him in years, but I was friendly with somebody for a while. I was in a band called Large Marge, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> well, then right after that bad special effect, we get what looks like a, like a prosthetic mask over the actor or actress, and that looks pretty good. I agree. Yeah. So it's like kind of that blend, right? Because the, the face is cool, but then when the face pops out using the CG... That is not cool. Yeah, I'm surprised, given Burton's insistence that they try to minimize the use of the CG, that he wouldn't have pushed to just redo it the same way they'd done for Pee-wee. But I have a feeling that one probably just came down to the time and money. It's just cheaper, quicker, and easier to do it with a computer. It would have been funny if it was stop motion and it was the exact same effect. Yeah, they should have just overlaid it onto the other actors. Yeah, some Beetlejuice-esque claymation (laughs) type shit. That that would have been great. The claymation in Beetlejuice is so good. The snake... Oh, yeah, that's totally what I was thinking, too. They had, like, the same effect. Oh, that would have been so fucking cool. It's great. Oh, God, when Burton is on, he is on. Fuck. What Ichabod Crane learns from that meeting is that he has to find the Tree of the Dead, which is, I guess, kind of like the resting place of the Headless Horseman, the killer. And uh, Katrina, Ichabod, and young Masbeth they go find it, don't they, Josh? They find this tree. Oh, oh my God, this tree looks so fucking cool. It does. And in, in, in fact, so we were talking a little bit at the beginning. They used one studio where they'd also shot some of episode one for like 80% of this. But there were some other sets as well. One of them was the town set that Corey mentioned, which they built on an estate in England. But there, they, they went to us. They had to use a separate lot because there wasn't any room where they were shooting. But they went to a, f- a really famous lot in England called Shepperton Studios and took over a really large soundstage. And they used the entire soundstage just to build this one little portion of the forest with the Tree of the Dead in it. It looks fantastic. Oh, absolutely. Like, Ichabod starts, like, hacking into the tree and blood starts, like, splashing back on his face. That was so cool. Yeah, I mean, turning the tree into something kind of fleshy and living was really... I mean, trees are alive anyway, but yeah. It's a nice touch, yes. And then we get the big reveal of where the heads are, and not much longer after that, the we see the horsemen come out of the tree, and that's just another just fucking awesome effect. The, 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 the effect of the horsemen on the horse leaving, jumping from the tree is great. I don't know how they, how they actually put that one together, but it looks awesome. 
Yeah, it's a good sequence of events in yeah. this area of the movie that I quite like a lot. The tree thing, it's like, it's so like chunky, yeah. right? And like when he hacks into it, it doesn't like, the sound design is good enough and the splatter effects are good enough to where it doesn't actually feel like a wood tree with blood. It yeah. feels like it's partly human flesh, this tree. Yeah, like something right? like, like, yeah. like a living fleshy human tree, yeah. It's awesome. Like, it, it's really good. I think a lot of credit to the sound design on that. Yeah. Because it has both the wood choppiness, which is like the skin, right. and then underneath that is like the meat. Right. It's very meaty, this tree. <laughs> <laughs> so the horseman is out and at it again. And Casper uh, Von Dean just like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm just going to throw down with this guy, which I love. You know, he's just like, you know what? Fuck this asshole, I'm gonna shoot him. Oh, that doesn't work? Alright, we're gonna fight. Like, <laughs> let's fight, bitch. Well, right before this, the horseman totally kills, like, a family of three. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really cool scene when he's walking in, holding the husband's severed head. The lightning flashes, and you can see, like, his expression. And from the child's perspective, under the floorboards, you just hear the chop. And then the roll... And her eyes from her severed head make eye contact with the kid hiding underneath the floorboard. I really like the scene. I think it's tense. That was all great. Having him kill the kid was more than I kind of expected. I'm not sure that was necessary, but whatever. Oh, you're gonna, <laughs> yeah. you're gonna tell this demon that 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 was unnecessary, sir. Well, Sheath your sword. But we find out later in the film that it was only sent out to kill specific people, and it's already let other people go several times. In fact, when Brom gets himself killed, it would have completely ignored Brom if he hadn't started the fight. So, like, why does it have to kill the kid? It doesn't make any sense. I Like, they explained to you later why the two adults got it, but there's really no good reason the kid needed to be murdered. Holy shit, you're right. You know? So, I just, I, I mean, I guess it, it reinforces the idea of him being a demon. Absolutely no argument there, but it just, like, yeah, it doesn't, sort of seems to contradict itself. Well, at least when he's walking out of the house like a boss that you don't really, you don't really see the kid's head. So, at least there's that question mark. I always wonder about filming that stuff with kids that age. I mean, the little the little boy did a fantastic job. He was perfect, but like... I want his little nightlight set up. It's fucking rad. Right? It's got to be freaky for the kid, though. I know, I know <laughs> they, they've said multiple times before, like when they were filming The Shining, Kubrick told everyone... I can't remember his name now, but the actor who played Danny, the kid, Kubrick basically told everyone, if anyone tells this kid what this movie's about, I'm going to fire you. They did not want him to know he was working on a horror film because they, they were afraid it would fuck him up. So they shot all of his scenes without him really knowing what he was in. Trauma shmama. Damn. Yeah. That kid's in Arkham now, though. He is. <laughs> right? Locked away. In a straight jacket. Right? He's going to be a Batman supervillain. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Uh, but we were talking a little bit about the Casper Von Dean slash Horseman slash Ichabod Crane fight. Yes. Right? It's kind of good. What a cool fight. The two it on is. one. It's awesome. Fucking Darth Maul is killing it, man. He's I was going to ask you guys, did it take you out of it at all when the movie started playing Duel of the Fates? <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I might make that an edit. Thank right. you, Josh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's really cool. And in this moment, or at least around this moment, somewhere in here, Ichabod Crane like kind of realizes that someone is controlling the horseman. He yeah. has specific targets. Yeah, and it's because of what we were talking about a moment ago. When the horseman finishes killing this family, he, he just starts leaving. He walks right by Ichabod and Brom. He's got no interest in either of them. Yep. Yeah. 
the way he carries himself as he walks out of the house nonchalantly throwing the heads into his sack is it, it's super boss. Ray Park did a really good job with the physical acting aspect of the the headless horseman, I think. Yeah, he did. He he's a very good actor at carrying that physicality. I mean, you, you look at uh, episode one, he's one of the few bright spots in that movie, and that, that character's got very few actual lines, but part gave him a lot of presence. I mean, the makeup helps, but... And let's not forget his role as Reptile in Mortal Kombat <laughs> Annihilation. No, no, I want to forget that. <laughs> it's a lot about episode one I want to forget. But, <laughs> but Toad, too. People sometimes forget he was Toad in X-Men. You know right? what? I had forgotten that. Oh, You're yeah. right. God, I forget that Toad was even in that first one. I really like him as Toad. I honestly, like, I think Toad is one of the coolest villains in that movie. Yeah, he's really one of the highlights of that first movie. Yeah, I don't usually like him, but that movie is so iffy otherwise. I I don't normally like him either, but I think they portrayed him well in that movie. Like, he kicks everyone's ass in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they occasionally got things right. I know we agree they they nailed the Nightcrawler. You know, yeah, oh, they nailed yes. Sabretooth and X Men Origins Wolverine. <laughs> We're gonna have to disagree about that one. They nailed it, bro. He's wearing a trench coat. <laughs> He's wearing a trench coat. You even know how to kill me. I'm gonna cut your goddamn head off. <laughs> uh, second best, only behind the uh, the sewn mouth shut version of Deadpool. <laughs> Honestly, I think that's like one of the best parts of Deadpool too, when he keeps like popping off rounds. The awful shitty Deadpool. Having them having them kind of try to erase the existing version of Deadpool that way was good. I liked that. It's just a shame he shouldn't he couldn't like show up in Green Lantern, right? Right. Oh god, yeah, I wish it was the same publisher, man. Yeah. Oh boy. Ryan Reynolds will just be whatever superhero they offer him. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll take the part, no matter how shitty. Yeah, which superhero is this? You know what? Doesn't matter. I'll take it. Blade <laughs> Trinity? I'm in. I'm in it. <laughs> oh, I wish we'd had time to do the first Blade. I really do. Anyway. We can still do it. There's still time. All right. Right now. All right. Blade. <laughs> Blade. Right. <laughs> Steve, how the hell was this movie made? <laughs> right. Well, you see, there was a comic book. <laughs> All right. Enough of this horse shit. <laughs> So Ichabod is investigating. He's kind of having his little, like, Ace Ventura, like, Finkel and Einhorn scene, you know? <laughs> oh, my goodness, yes. He's, like, putting the pieces together. Van Garrett Van Tassel. Van Garrett Van Tassel. And he realizes that the town elders are involved in some kind of conspiratorial plots. Yeah. Right? That has to do with the Headmas Horseman. Not totally sure yet what, but he goes and he shakes down Alfred. <laughs> Steve, maybe you can tell us, like, what's revealed in that scene, because some of the finer details of this movie, I'm going to be honest, they do escape me. (laughs) Right. He basically finds out that that Baltus Van Tassel, the minister, the notary, these other people were all essentially in on a conspiracy that they did not realize was going to involve murder, but that they did know was going to screw other people out of their property. They were basically just trying to enrich themselves by stealing some land. The rich get richer. Yeah. Uh, and then this stuff started happening, and he, he he finds out that the Van Garrett character who gets killed at the beginning owned a huge percentage of the land in this area, that Baltus's land was originally a gift from the, from the Van Garretts, and that there's a, a will which leaves the Van Garrett land in the possession of an unborn child, and that's why the pregnant woman got killed. 
and they've been hiding this will. They killed or, or, or took the took the will, which is in the satchel after Van Garrett got beheaded and, and have been keeping it keeping it secret. But I mean, without going into all of it, basically he claims that the bunch of them were conspiring to screw some people out of land, but didn't realize that anyone was going to get killed in the process. You're talking about the will, and I keep thinking of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Hi, <laughs> Marvin Acme. Right. Of sound mind and body. Yeah. <laughs> Calling it a freeway. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, I mean, he, he he's able to establish that these guys were definitely involved at some point, but it doesn't get them all that far in figuring out where the Headless Horseman came from. Right. They're still trying to piece together, like, who's the person in control? Ichabod finds... Witch drawings under his bed, right. which are, uh, I guess, pointing to Katrina as a suspect, which at least. Are... <laughs> yeah, so earlier in the film, Katrina gave uh, Ichabod a book called The Compendium of Spells, Char- Charms, and Devices of the Spirit World. And this is the first inkling that she's into some stuff. And then we see her later mixing potions and drawing some signs. And um, Ichabod having some familiarity with the idea of witchcraft devises that she is into it to some degree. And um, even suspects her a little bit of potentially being in control of the horsemen. And uh, he finds in his room at one point a symbol, a witchcraft symbol, that he and the young uh, Nazbeth incorrectly identify as being the evil eye. He believes it's the evil eye and that someone's drawn it there to um, put a curse on him. Yes. Yeah. Also, somewhere around this time, and I wasn't sure how to fit this in, but he he goes to the woods and he sees... uh, Lady Van Tassel getting banged. Yeah, he's... he's I just wanted to bring that up, because I just... I don't know, it, it's something about it's funny to me, just like that is. he sees that. It, yeah, absolutely. Just walks in on it. It's from the minister, you know? <laughs> like. But he's for sure, like, positive that Baltus was behind everything, right? Yeah, I mean, he eventually comes to the conclusion that Baltus must be doing this because he's already the most powerful guy in the area and is just trying to make himself more so. And, and, you know, we discover through the notary that while Baltus was definitely involved in an underhanded plan to basically steal some land, that he's not evil enough that he'd be having people killed. Like, he's a shitty human being, but he's not that kind of shitty. Yeah. You know. Gaius Baltus. Right. <laughs> Father to a slain son. <laughs> I was more going with uh, Battlestar Galactica. Oh, that's true. Gaius Baltus. Oh, yeah, that's right. That fucking simp. That character should have gotten killed off way earlier. I love that dude. I mean, he's great. He's a great, great actor for that character, but I just you hate the character. I know. So. Fucking shithead. Right? So, Ichabod does have some incriminating evidence, which Katrina burns because it's her father. She doesn't want her father to be incriminated, even though he's done some bad things. Yeah. Definitely does not believe that he is the one getting people killed. So they have a big town meeting that night. Yes. Right? And it's in the local church. Yeah. Yeah, it, which... Basically, the whole town's inside the church, and the yeah. horseman approaches, right, Steve? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They it, This would have been a, a kind of a real touch. In a lot of real small towns, both in colonial U.S. and, and in Europe and elsewhere, um, you, you don't want to build unnecessary buildings. It's a lot of work, and the building has to be maintained, and the church is already big enough to accommodate more or less everyone who who lives in town. So they'd hold a lot of their... All, all over the place, real life, they would hold a lot of these kinds of town meetings and in the local church. So that's where they're all congregating to talk about what's going on. But Baltus had just been out in a field to get his wife because she was supposed to go with him to this town meeting. And he definitely sees her die, right? 
Yeah, well, you think so? Yeah, yeah, it certainly seems like he does. And uh, he sees the headless horseman approach, and it seems like the horseman has killed her. So Baltus rides back to town, and he gets there just to, just as everyone's entering the church, and grabs Katrina and tells her, you know, your stepmother's dead. I just watched her get beheaded. And here comes the horseman behind him, and the horseman's after him. So he cloisters himself inside the church with everyone else, and um, he discovers through a little bit of exposition that the um, the horseman can't enter the churchyard. I guess Holy Land or whatever, and uh, he... <laughs> whatever. Right? So he's stuck outside this, the gate around the church while everyone else is inside, and the horseman is frantically riding in circles, trying to find a way to, to break through so he can get it at, at, uh, at Van Tassel. Yeah, and the elders are kind of like infighting among themselves, yelling at each other. Right. Uh, Palpatine gets picked up by Darth Vader and like right. <laughs> tossed down the shaft and explodes. And then one of them starts to admit to, to, to Baltar what they had done, what was going on, and so the minister kills him. And then Van Tassel shoots, shoots the minister with a rifle. But then everyone, this part I don't really think I fully understand because everyone goes after Van Tassel and like I get he just shot a dude but he shot the minister for killing another person it's not like he just whipped the gun out and shot him like so I don't know that seemed a little weird but yeah I mean things happen so fast and it just got out of hand yeah a lot is going on right this is not a great party (laughs) (laughs) I do like what the horseman does though like because he can't get in so he takes like what a fence post right And and he like launches it in through the window, it has it's attached to a rope. Yes. It impales Baltus Dumbledore, <laughs> and he drags him out of the building. It's so cool. Yes, he drags him through a second-story window, and uh, I, the great I think the best part is he drags him just far enough that his head is poking through the fence of the churchyard, because the only thing the head horseman needs access to is the head. So as long as the head is outside church property, you're good to go. That's, that's actually a very nice touch. It is. I like that. Yeah, he just throws like a fucking scorpion spear, right? Yeah. <laughs> get over here. <laughs> or if it's Mortal Kombat 2021, get over here. <laughs> get over here. Oh, Mortal Kombat movies. <laughs> Ichabod Crane has had enough of this horse shit. Like, he He's is, done. That's what I have is my exact same note, Corey. God damn it. I have... Ichabod's tired of this horseman shit. God damn it. <laughs> That's even better, yeah. So he's like, you know what? I'm in, I I gotta go. I gotta go back to New York City. New York. Forget about it. Forget about Forget it. About it. Uh, but he immediately comes back because he kind of like puts the pieces together, right? And at the same time, Lady Von Tassel, who is actually still alive, has her big villain reveal moment, doesn't she, Josh? Yes, so I guess big reveal here, she didn't die. (laughs) As it turns out, she was able to fake her death due to uh, clever editing. (laughs) And at this point, she starts to give a bit of an exposition dump. She begins to explain her whole, like, devious plot and how she would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for those middling kids. (laughs) She decapitates one of their servants who was stated as missing earlier. She cuts the hand of the the dead servant to help cover her tracks. Also, it's revealed that she's been banging a real-life monster. (laughs) Um, Turns out her sister's the witch. Turns out her sister's the witch, which she decapitates. (laughs) 
Is she? I think, and that's that's one weird plot point. They never explain why she'd kill her own sister like that. The whole idea was supposed to be her getting revenge for what was done to her family. She said she did it because the witch helped them. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Nah. Steve, what is the plot here? Like, what is her plot in terms of, like, why is she doing all this? What's the goal? Who is she in relation to these people? How is her sex life? At one point earlier in the film, Katrina takes Ichabod to the woods and shows him the dilapidated, decaying remains of what was once a very small cottage that her and her family lived in. She tells Ichabod that when her family got to town... Van, the Van Garretts owned pretty much all the land in the area, and they had nothing. And the Van Garretts gave her and her family an acre of land, I think, and the cottage to live in. And that her father developed it from there to end up becoming one of the wealthiest farmers in the area in his own right. And she makes a point of showing Ichabod an engraving at the back of what used to be the fireplace inside the chimney area, uh, an engraving of an archer with a bow and arrow. And says to Ichabod that she has no idea where it came from, but knows that the archer predated her family living there by quite some time. So by the time we get to the the sort of third act, late third act here with Mrs. Van Tassel, we find out that she says her surname was Archer. We find out that her, her sister, and her parents who worked for the Van Garretts had all lived in that cottage at one point. But that after her father's death, when the family was no longer of any use to the Van Garretts, they got booted off the land, which was then given to the Van Tassels. And uh, after that happened, her mother had no choice but to take her and her twin sister, or I think they're supposed to be twins, either way, her and her sister, out to the woods where they lived. Her mother, who knew witchcraft, taught some to the two of them, but was dead within a year. And the two of them had to learn to subsist on their own. The sister became a full-on witch in her own right, and you're not really told how, but somehow Miss, this Mrs. Van Tassel well, found her way back. You just get into it, you know? Yeah. Mrs. Van Tassel found her way back to town somehow and ingratiated herself, became a, a caretaker for people, became a nurse to the original Mrs. Van Tassel, who, who she killed. You find out the original Mrs. Van Tassel was never really ill. She was the victim of witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then she married... Mr. Van Tassel so that she could use it as a stepping stone toward taking all this land back for herself and her family, or at least for herself, since she decides to kill her sister. She somehow retrieves the Headless Horseman's skull from the Tree of the Dead, where he was originally buried, and uses it as a way, as like a spell point, to control what he's doing, and she's been using him to knock off all these other members of town partly out of revenge for what was done to the family and partly so that she can get all this land back for herself. It's all one big real estate scam. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah, this basically turns into a a story about real estate. Yeah. You know, and like, this is a (laughs) huge... The cutthroat real estate market. (laughs) The version your parents never told you about. And it's interesting, I think, that they decided to go this route because there really was no secondary subplot to the original written story. The original written story was basically just a ghost story. It's about Ichabod showing up in this town, getting the shit scared out of him, and eventually disappearing. And the story sort of just ends with him disappearing. No one knows where he went. I remember a frog. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's that, yeah. In this version of the story, they decided they needed a whole subplot, and that he needed to be a detective instead of a schoolmaster, and, and it turns into this. Right. <laughs> this is definitely more of a movie formula than from what I understand of the original story. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the movies were made of the original story. Uh, Disney even did an animated version of it that I think a lot of lot of us probably saw growing up. But uh, yeah, I guess they decided that this made the story more cinematic somehow. And uh, of course, it is that in terms of the big chase scene at the end with uh, Ichabod Crane, Katrina, and Young Nazbeth being chased by the headless horseman, who looks fucking awesome, by the way. Yeah, moves very fluidly for a man with no head. He feels very strong, he's very quick, and he feels very brutal. Well, when you don't have a head, it makes you fucking aerodynamic. Yeah, you know, very agile. Oh, that's true. You could be fast, yeah. (laughs) Most of the climax takes place in a windmill. They had to build multiple versions of this windmill. There were multiple different large-scale versions, and then there were miniature versions, because some some of them were used for long shots or, or special effect shots and some of them used, were used for interior but one of the larger sized versions of it they they built for this was um they used forced pr- perspective to make it look bigger than it was but it really was 60 feet tall and uh people apparently from several miles away could actually see it i really like the windmill set yeah so do i it looks really good especially the interior part that they built it's it's a it's a Tim Burton windmill, you know. It's, it is. <laughs> it looks but like it was made for a Tim Burton movie. It was, and the, for, and to give it a little extra detail, they actually equipped the inside of it with real gears and grinding devices, at least similar to what you would have found inside a real windmill. Right. You mentioned that was a, a big part of this final act. You know, they run through the windmill. They have to kind of like escape from the top of it down, and it gets set on fire in the process. Yeah. And it's very. Um, it's very 30s Frankenstein it is. this moment, isn't it? With yeah. The windmill being uh, set on fire and like the the way it looks when they pull back and it shows a wide shot of it, you know, there's not a lot of color outside of the fire. I so be- it gives you that vibe as well. Oh, yeah. I believe Burton has talked before about that his favorite iteration of horror, a lot of those older Frankenstein and Dracula movies and stuff like that. So I, I think he takes a lot from those when he does this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. They have a chase uh, on horseback, don't they, Josh? Uh, yeah, it's like a testosterone field carriage chase scene. Ichabod and Christina Ritchie is trying to get away, and the horseman is swiftly gaining on him with his undead horse. Now, you know what would have made this chase better? I have to say real quick, um, there's two things this chase is missing that would have made it better, clearly. Are um, some CG gophers and someone getting somehow not killed by a branch in the face. That would have made it <laughs> way better. Hold on. <laughs> Should we throw in Shia LaBeouf swinging from branches with monkeys? Yeah, Any, dude. Anything Shia the Beef is in. Imagine no. if Shia swung down and like helped him out and like sword fought the headless horseman. <laughs> right. Get dude. on, Gramps. They, you know, they could make uh, an Indiana Jones and the Skull of the Headless Horseman movie. <laughs> uh, well, it would have been better than what we actually got. Couldn't have been any dumber. Uh. <laughs> Thank God they're making a fifth one. That's bound to be good. Oh, yeah. I uh. can't wait for an 80,000-year-old Indiana Jones <laughs> punching people. The reanimated corpse of Harrison Ford. <laughs> right? Somebody change my diapers. I really feel like he died in a plane crash like three years ago when Disney re- reanimated his corpse. Oh, uh, man. I'm convinced we're not that far off from a lot of uh, hologram actors being in these movies anyway. <laughs> So they kind of make it to, like, the tree area uh, at at the end of the chase, and Lady Van Tassel does show up. She 
shoots Ichabod Crane, but it's the old problem child gag, you know? It's like, oh, you didn't shoot me, you shot the thing in my pocket. Right? <laughs> Dude, after Ichabod got shot, I had a flash of, like, Ernie Ray Sr. D- getting shot doing a fucking barrel roll and serve mm-hmm. bitches. Yeah. <laughs> you want to get crazy? Let's get crazy. <laughs> I'm actually wearing a Surf Ninjas t-shirt right now, Josh. Oh, hey, Steve, wow. can you shit. confirm? He is. He actually mm-hmm. is. See? That's fucking impressive. Awesome. He changed out of the uh, the Care Bear shirt he, he had on when I got here. Okay, that part's not real, but I am wearing a Surf Ninjas shirt. <laughs> he is. Ugh. But Johnny Depp should have put some kind of metal serving tray under his shirt. That's what really protects you from getting shot. Right. <laughs> he didn't get nuts enough. No, he didn't get nuts. <laughs> But Ichabod Crane, he gets his hands on the crystal skull and returns it to the rightful place, the grave of the horseman. Some awkward aliens. Josh, would you say that what follows is the best part of the movie? Oh, are you talking about Walken's transformation? Yeah. Yeah, from going from being headless to back to normal ass Walken, yeah. Yeah, well, a top tier CGI, groundbreaking, I would say. Like move over Jurassic Park, th- this is the new high bar. CGI aside, I do like what he does. Like it's creepy, and it's like, I think it's memorable. When I think about this movie, I think about this moment. Well, if it hadn't been CGI, I think I would have liked it more. If it had been like a claymation, uh, I think it would have reminded me a lot of like Beetlejuice, a lot of those facial expressions yeah. that he pulls off like with the way his eyes bulge and stuff for sure <laughs> do you like seeing christopher walken reanimated steve yeah it was pretty good i i this is here's a phrase i never thought i'd utter in my entire life but um my one criticism here is uh the ghost rider with nick cage actually did it slightly better oh my god <laughs> oh, no. you know they, they they actually i they they did a thing for that where they mapped his head his actual head and then like with lasers and then used it to size the skull for the scenes where he had no skin that was like the only i, I haven't watched the movie since it came out probably looks like shit now but they took his face off right but uh that was kind of cool at the time it was the only thing about the ghost rider movie i liked but uh but yeah what I like seeing is after he's transformed into Christopher Walken with those fucking teeth in your face, he grabs the witch woman, the Lady Van Tassel. Oh, yeah. And then he does the bite kiss. The bite, that's right. Right? So he, like, goes to make out with her. He's like, I remember you from when you were a kid. But Let's he, make but out now. It's a bad kiss, though, because he misses her nose. <laughs> <laughs> Still, could be worse. At least my nose isn't gushing blood. <laughs> I love that though That's the thing I remember From this movie the most Is Christopher Walken Biting that woman's Fucking face And her reaction Was like Oh my god I am fucked now Oh yeah Yeah Well is it just A hardcore Metal as fuck kiss Cause after Rewatching it Like Given her reaction Like Is it possible That he like Bit her tongue off Like I don't Think so But It's just the way She puckers her lips You know Maybe Maybe he bit the tongue off I mean, if he did, I would have liked to have seen spit it out for right. audience clarity, but... Or chew it, yeah, yeah. God. <laughs> He's got those fucking teeth. You gotta do something with them. Yeah, right. exactly. I should have done this when you were a little girl. Uh. Oh, God, Steve. <laughs> well, hey, he should have. He should have killed her. She caused all these problems for him. 
Oh, killed her. I yeah. see what you're saying. I thought you meant something else. No, All God, right. no. Jesus, you pervert. <laughs> well, obviously, he's bloodthirsty, so you just asked her very nicely to be quiet. Just shh. Right. Are you the bitch that broke the twig? Yeah, aren't you that same little girl that got my head cut off? Fucking bitch. <laughs> he should have, like, broken a twig, like, right before oh, yeah. he took her in. Like, he could have been like... Right? Oh, that would have been good. Little callback. Oh yeah, like a moment where like she comes to and she's on the ground and he's behind her and he like snaps a twig to get her attention. That would have been nice. Yeah. <laughs> but he grabs her and he takes her down back into hell where he will, I guess, I don't know. Well, he does and he doesn't, right? Because her arm gets left outside the tree and I don't really understand how that works. Yeah, her arm stays. Her arm still sticks, and, and you can see the hand kind of die. And it's like, so she did. Did she get encased inside the tree, or did the rest of her go to hell? Or <laughs> sequel bait? You know, you heard of the headless <laughs> horseman. Here's the handless witch, the <laughs> one-armed <laughs> woman. <laughs> Return to the headless horseman sounds like a Roger Corman movie. <laughs> <laughs> Dawn of Justice. <laughs> the Snyder Cut. Snyder cut. We've made three minor changes, and the movie's now 45 minutes longer. <laughs> oh, no, we didn't actually edit anything. We just, we added more in. Right? Oh, God. So after it's over, Katrina and Crane, they go back to New York together. I think the idea is they are now uh, going to be a couple, right? They have been kind of like flirting throughout the movie yeah. until they, they like each other. Uh, she's wearing a straight-up Beetlejuice dress, which is fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got young Nazbeth with them. I guess the idea is they adopt the kid, you know? Yeah. thing Even, is, Christina Ricci is pretty young herself in this movie. I was going to say, the two of them are way too young at that point to really have a kid that age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think she was 19 when this movie uh, filmed. Right. If I remember correctly. But yeah, so th they're together. And, and funnily enough, actually, kind of on a side note, Johnny Depp thought it was weird that, like, she was the romantic interest in the movie because yeah. he said he's known her since she was nine. Yeah, right? yeah. So it's like... Apparently, yeah, he was a little put off by that. Yeah, that is that is a strange situation to be in. Right. Do they show them kiss? Like, is there a scene where they kiss, like, in the movie? I think, isn't there? Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure, but I could have sworn there was. Yeah, he goes to kiss her, and he ends up biting her lips off. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, there you go. Right there. We're watching it on the TV. He does get a kiss on the cheek from her at one point. Well, twice. Well, twice. If you count the beginning. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, that is a little fucking weird. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah, in the script weird. there was more of an intimate kiss, but Johnny Depp was just like, no. no yeah. No, no, you can't no, no, no. do it. Or a sex scene. <laughs> it's too bad she could have become his next corrected tattoo, like Wino's Forever. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Winona Ryder was offered this role, but turned it down. I mean, her and Johnny Depp had broken up years ago, so yeah. When it's, I don't, I don't know. I don't keep much on celebrity gossip, but it seems like they must get along okay because she came to his defense about all the stuff Amber Heard had accused him of. So oh, okay, yeah, I guess you're right. That is the way Sleepy Hollow ends. Steve, do you have any final thoughts about the movie before we go into ratings? Yeah, it really it ends with a shot of them getting out of a carriage back in Manhattan. And um, so you get to see a little bit of the city, and this is where they're going to live now. The last line, Johnny Depp tells Christina, tells Katrina and, and the kid that the Bronx is up and the battery is down, which is a stolen line from a very famous song on the town, which is part of, sung by Gene Kelly in a, 
a musical play called New York. There's two New York, New Yorks. There's New York, New York, the musical, which that song came from. And then there's a Frank Sinatra song called New York, New York, which is a different song. And he would, but even though he was also in the musical, it's very confusing. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> the last line is a reference to a famous song from a musical. It's also a place. I don't know if you know that. New York is a place? New York, New York is a place, yeah. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the best rendition of that song is from Gremlins 2. Agreed. But, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that, no, that's pretty much it for, for thoughts. Josh, any final thoughts before we go into ratings? Okay, so true story time. Something about Johnny Depp's performance is so ingrained into my head <laughs> that I once created a Dungeons and Dragons like dark, gothicy, cowardly wizard character named Ichabod, and I based it solely off of his performance in this movie. Did you write campaigns featuring him? No, I was a player in that one, and we never finished. Aww. So the story of my life. <laughs> Gotta watch out for that Gorgon, man. Right. I love it. <laughs> Let's get into ratings, Josh, on any rating scale you want. What are you going to give Sleepy Hollow? Like, I get it. This movie's got a couple of flaws, but for some reason, uh, like a mix of nostalgia, the gothic atmosphere, the fucking performances, I'm going to give this nine cowardly Johnny Depp's out of ten. Ooh. <laughs> wow. That's a good rating. Thank you, sirs. All right, I'm going to go next. I'm going to give this 7.8 out of 10. I've been kind of like thinking about this movie in comparison to other movies we've done recently, which I've given high ratings to. And I was going to give it the same as I gave Brain Scan, but I was like, you know what? No, this movie's better than Brain Scan, right? I mean, it is. Yeah. The thing is, I don't like to think about a rating and based on ratings I've given other movies. And my ratings are... I'm just going to straight up say it. They're fucking inconsistent. They make no sense. <laughs> yeah, mine I gave too, Surf yeah. Ninjas a 10 and Terminator 2 9.5 out of 10. Yeah. So something's going on you there. Surf Ninjas a 10? Yeah. All right. It's a perfect movie, Steve. <laughs> I guess it is. Flawless. Name one flaw. Name <laughs> one flaw. Oh. I don't know. I prefer Surf Nazis Must Die. Yeah. But anyway... There was a lot to like about this movie. I think this is the uh, last breath of my favorite Tim Burton era. And for me, that makes it special. Yeah. It has the great gothic aesthetic. And it's kind of a cool mystery horror as well. Good performances by Johnny Depp and, uh, you know, the Sith Lords that are in this movie. Some cool action scenes. It's, it's very atmospheric. And I said that earlier, and that's the biggest strength of this movie is the way it looks and feels. Not to mention the Danny Elfman score. If you're one of those people out there that hates Danny Elfman music, you know, fuck you. Yeah. You know, I, fuck I, you. What like, else can I say? Boingo Boingo is one of the greatest contributions ever to the landscape of America. All right, now music. you're pushing it. All right. What? That that didn't come from me. That was Steve. Well, you don't. You if you're saying Oingo Boingo is anything less than great, there's no justification for that argument. They're all right. Yeah, Oingo Boingo is all right. I liked his music in uh, film. Uh, compositions. No, he has some very... nothing he's ever done for a movie will ever be anywhere remotely near oh as good God. as Dead Man's Party. No. It's not the even The Batman close. theme. Batman theme's great. It's not as good as Dead Man's Party. Oh, my God. All right. It's not. Steve's wrong. All right. So yeah. that's what I, oh, I got. Steve, you're up next. Why don't you go ahead? On a scale of 1 to 10, Oingo Boingo is the greatest band that Corey's <laughs> ever heard in his entire life. God. He's the guy who listens to Korn. No. Uh, <laughs> on a, you. Right? <laughs> on a scale of 1 to 10, mercenary soldiers with sharpened teeth. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give this movie a seven. 
I'm not trying to be shitty. I, 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 I don't like it enough to say I think it's worth more than a seven, but I like it enough to say it's definitely worth a seven. It's definitely better than average compared to a lot of other movies of this kind. It's fun to watch. It's a little, little thin sometimes, but you know, no major complaints. So yeah, seven, seven out of ten for me. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Josh, you create content. If people want to hear more from you, where can they find you? What is it you do? I uh, occasionally make content. You can go to Review Inc. or type Review D-O-O-D into your search bar. And uh, let's just say I make fun of movies. That's what I do. And we'll occasionally do Season of the Witch because that's a praise episode because Steve's wrong. <laughs> Steve's wrong about many things today. I, I mean, except the things I'm right about, which is all of them. <laughs> But that's okay. We love him anyway. I want to thank you, Steve, for joining me on this podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate it a lot. Josh, I want to thank you as well for joining me. View the listeners. If you liked what you heard here, leave us a positive rating and written review on Apple Podcasts. That's the biggest ask I have of you. Even if you don't have an iPhone, you know someone that does. Borrow it for a second. Pull up our podcast. Leave us a positive rating on written review. That will get more people to listen to us, which is a good thing. That's what I want. That's why I do this. Because I want people to listen. Listen to this and Oingo Boingo. I guess you could listen to Oingo Boingo while you leave us a written review. Yeah, it's true. But that's only going to take a few seconds, so you won't finish a full song, which is probably it's the true. best way to listen to Oingo Boingo. Oh, wow. I'm just okay. kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. It's just pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> They're no Queen of the Damned soundtrack. <laughs> they can't be Linkin Park, but you know. <sighs> If you're listening on YouTube, give us a thumbs up. If you're not listening on YouTube, check out YouTube when you go on later. Subscribe to us and give us a thumbs up. We appreciate it. Leave us a comment. Do all that cool stuff. Uh, We love you. I think that's all we got to say. Good night. Ahoy.
right, so the Stephen King book Cell. Someone recommended it to me, and I read it a couple years ago. It's so fucking dated, dude. This movie, this book was dated by the time it hit shelves. Right. It's about cell phone zombies. Cell phone zombies. <laughs> so this book came out in like 2007. Right. So it's at that sweet spot, you know? You know what happened? King had some incident in traffic where he was like, all oh, these people on their cell phones are zombies. And it's like, hey, that didn't make a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he like ran out of things. In his room that could become, like, evil, possessed killer. Like, the killer chair. What's that, like, old, like, what is it, a Simpsons joke? Or yes. a, No, it's like a family guy joke. Where he's like, it's the lamp. It's going to come get you. It's the lamp. And they're like, all right, we'll give you 20 million bucks. All right, yeah, perfect. <laughs> no, but Cell is... All right, so our protagonist is a guy that, like, doesn't want a cell phone, you know? He's not with that new cell phone trend bullshit. And this is, like, even before smartphones, I'm pretty sure. Right. But then it turns out, due to an unknown force, everyone that has a cell phone gets possessed, basically, and turned into a mindless zombie. So, wow. because he doesn't have one... He doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah, of course. So, it's, it's him making his way through the world of these zombies. And every now and then, he meets a, you know, this a person like... like himself that is of strong mind that rejected cell phones. Uh, but this is bordering on, like... Far right anti-vax fiction, you know, it's mm-hmm. like like we're we're the ones fighting for freedom. We aren't the sheep, <laughs> the rest of you. Like, oh god, it's my personal choice to not have a cell phone. God damn it! <laughs> right? Respect my freedoms. I think I have a theory about the plot for the Fourth Matrix, and I haven't read anything, so I I could be totally wrong. And the plot even may be online, but I have I have a theory. I have a theory. All right, hit me. So you remember, I know it was awful. I'm only bringing it up because it happened. You remember in the second one where he has that conversation with the architect and the architect is sort of trying to explain philosophically like the nature and construction of the Matrix. I thought it was just trying to confuse Neo with big words. (laughs) Right? Partly, yeah. But there's a part during his diatribe where he tells Neo that that version of the Matrix isn't even the first one. That they've had multiple matrixes because every time they build one, that I do remember. Yeah, and and every because every time they built one previously, there'd been something in it that that allowed it to be exploited or cheated or destroyed, and that they they had actually lost matrixes matrixes in the past to the Zion people. So my theory is this new one's going to be built entirely on that. And they're going to say that it turns out that even though they thought they won at the end of the third one, that it was just an earlier version of the Matrix and that they've simply rebuilt it and that Neo never escaped in the first place and was his, is still just in the pod. So that is somewhat related to the theory that I gave you that I, I said they might do where it's a Matrix in a Matrix. Yeah. That sounds somewhat related. Right. right? But just a slight offshoot of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So in the architect scene, he, he what, he ate? Yeah, he even makes a point of telling Neo that at one point early on, they tried to make the Matrix as perfect as they possibly could, believing that if human beings were completely happy all the time, there'd never be any reason for them to look elsewhere, but it didn't work. Like, Yeah, yeah. I remember that. But like he says, okay, now you have a choice to make, and every other Neo always makes this choice. Yeah. You were going to make... A different choice or something like that, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I don't remember. That whole fucking scene is annoying. Right, it is kind of annoying. It, it, they could have made that a lot easier for people to digest. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And he, you're right. He does tell them there have been other Neos before. And, and like, so yeah, I, I have a feeling this is just that. 
What were the other Neos? There was Neo Noir who came in with like a jacket, a brown jacket and a hat, like the, a detective. The franchise's least favorite neo-Nazi. Yeah, there was neo-Nazi. He came in and he was like, the Jews brought me here. I'm right, yeah, this is all a Jewish conspiracy. Agent Smith is like a fucking Hasidic Jew. Out the face in the hat. I love it. <laughs> Uh, uh, Neo's just throwing Star of David's ninja stars at people. What other Neos are there? Uh, Neo conservative. <laughs> I think he was the architect. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, okay. Neo evangelical Christian. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of those. There. There's Neo Geo. He's a fucking gaming console. Oh, dude, if they did Neo Geo, I'd be all over that shit. Absolutely. <laughs> <He's> like- <laughs> No one's going to play me. No, I'm too expensive for this. Yeah. The Smith can't afford it. Like, <laughs> it's uh, like 1600 bucks or however much Neo Geo was. Yeah, they were crazy expensive. That was like a, an arcade cabinet, essentially, right? Yeah, that was the deal. Because, you know, the, the, big, the big publishers would all uh, produce their own arcade hardware. Sega had it, Capcom had it, Namco had it, and SNK developed a board for their arcade hardware in the late 80s new board that basically the SN, the Neo Geo was just a consoleized version of the arcade hardware, which is why it was so ridiculously expensive. And the, the big advantage was supposed to be and was if you bought the games, it was giant this, fucking games. huge cartridges. Yeah, <laughs> You're buying the board of the arcade basically, right? Yeah, yeah. You have the arcade board in the console and then the ROM carts, the game data would come on, were just packaged into these, these different um, cartridges. And, um, so you were playing the exact arcade game at home, which was awesome. You got the 100% completely the same as what ran in the arcade cabinet. But yeah, the, in 1990, the console was like 800 bucks and the games were $200 a piece. And it's ridiculous. People did eventually figure out that um, with a pretty simple adapter, you could just plug in the ROM carts for the arcade cabinets and they were less expensive to buy. But yeah. <laughs> 